You're, you're, you're listening to the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It's time to wake up with the morning boys. On Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And here are your hosts, Ryan Hickey and Mark Kelly. Good Friday morning and welcome into the Morning Boys. Ryan Hickey and Mark Kelly back with you on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Thanks so much for tuning in. We are here every Tuesday, Friday, 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. on the East Coast. We have a ton, ton to get to. Um, a lot of MLB hot stove. And how about this? Finally now, baseball, obviously, last year we had the big standstill, the big stalemate. Manny Machado, Bryce Harper, two big free agents, didn't sign. But it felt like forever until... Late February, early March. Now a lot of the big names are already coming off the board in baseball. So finally the hot stove is back hot as the winter meetings conclude in San Diego. So we will get to a lot of those moves. What's next? Should there be concern that a lot of young players, Chris Bryant, Francisco Lindor, Carlos Correa, Josh Hader, are on the trade block by their specific team? Should we be concerned that all this young talent is possibly being looked at to get moved or not? We'll see if that's a concern baseball should be worried about. Obviously a lot of NFL to get to. Week 15 action coming up here we have a few big big games to get to um, that have a lot of playoff implications uh, the Heisman Trophy will be given out the college World playoff is set but more importantly my partner Mark Everett Kelly back after being sick on Tuesday Mark man I missed you on Tuesday how you doing I'm doing all right thank you for allowing me to come back oh <laughs> please, please. Right, but we still don't have Austin uh, no who's on another job interview but yeah I I, I when you have Crohn's disease, you don't know what the day can be like. And uh, I, I've had, there's a medication that I take that they, they stopped making for a little while. And so now they, they actually just started it again. So like yesterday I took it for the first time and I feel, I feel a lot better. But Good. Yeah, when, when you have Crohn's disease and lymphedema, which, which causes my, my legs to really swell and my feet to swell, it's like I couldn't even wear pants the other day. It's like my legs were so swollen and... Uh, so it, it's just a, you don't know. It's like living in a circus. You just have don't you don't know what the day is going to bring, and uh, but I'm glad to be back. And I miss being here. I I know you did a great job. I'm very impressed that you were able to do the show by yourself. Like I said, I was teasing him when I came in here. I'm like, did you interview yourself? <laughs> you know, and uh, Errol wound up coming in and helping him out for a little bit. But man, what what a job! You did a great job, but I mean, everyone knows that you are very good at what you do, and I'm very glad that you're my partner, nobody else's. So, uh, speaking of that, we have um, a couple guests on today, and one of them was a guy I used to do a podcast with uh, from Wisconsin named Peter Wiseman, a unique, unique guy, uh, great guy, and he knows uh, he has different views on a lot of different things. So it'd be good to get his uh, view on the NFL. We're gonna ask him about the. I know, last night for a little bit, while well, I, I couldn't sleep, I put on the NFL Network and I watched um, some of these 100 best players. And oh, have you watched? Okay. Some of the uh, the defensive and offensive guys. So we're going to ask him his opinion on that. He's a guy that thinks Tom, Tom Brady's overrated. 
Yeah, so I, this should be fun, huh? Yeah, he's like we. <laughs> I, every once in a while, I would I would rib him just to be like, you know, I still think that, but he really does, and uh, he's got his points. And uh, Ever, but you know what, Errol does too. Errol thinks he's overrated. So we'll see again. Peter Wiseman, like you said, coming up in about an hour, 9 o'clock on the East Coast Top. Like I said, talking a little NFL. Uh, he has his, I believe you said, all-22 team, right, of all time. Yeah. To give the best player at every single position. Yeah. Um, so we'll talk about that. And I believe TBD, Damien Adams, scheduled to come on. Yeah. We don't have time yet. Maybe we'll I'm come trying on. Trying to work it out with him. But, yeah, always great when we have Damien on because Damien knows a lot about everything. And he's very, uh, like, he, he, He's very passionate about what he does, and it's always fun to interview him. It's always fun to talk sports with him. I'd love to get his view on that Saints-Niners game, which probably was a game of the year. We were talking about that before. It was like last year's Chiefs-Rams game. That right. was like what, 51-48 or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I think it was 54-51. Yeah, okay. And yesterday, last week, they said 48-46. The 49ers go into mm-hmm. the Dome, the Superdome, and beat the Saints. Like, it's a big, he's a big Saints fan, so we'll get mm-hmm. his take on – the Saints, if he's worried, the NFC, uh, real deal with Damian Adams' podcast. We had him on, what was it, about a month, mm-hmm. month maybe two months ago? Yeah. Well, like, um, yeah, like one of the first Yeah, talk some weeks NBA, we I know. Yeah. Did some boxing. Some other, right. Yeah, like I said, just yeah. well-rounded in a ton of different sports. He's a great guy to talk to. Uh, so he will schedule. He's on the West Coast in Phoenix, so a little bit early for him. Um, so he is willing to get up and go talk to us. If you, if you want to give us a call before that, one 909 9977 That's one 909 9977 Again, a lot of hot stove baseball to get to. Um, so things missed, you know, I wanted to get Mark's opinion on uh, that we didn't talk about Tuesday. Again, the couch football field, couch football playoff field, excuse me, is set. LSU, Ohio State, Clemson, Oklahoma. Uh, we'll talk about that in just a little bit, get Mark's thoughts. Um, Heisman Trophy will be tomorrow. I think we know who will win. Um, I'm interested to see, though, who finished second and why. If one player doesn't finish second, I think it's a big travesty and disservice to the entire college football landscape this year. But, Mark, we'll start with Thursday Night Football like we do most of the time when we have a Friday show. The Ravens and the Jets. Again, you go into this matchup, you see the record. Ravens are 11-2. Jets are 5-8. and eight. You don't really expect much. The spread is pretty high. But the Jets have been playing better for the most part, right? We started, They started off this year really slow. Adam Gase is already – I mean, Hotsey would be generous, I guess, because people are already calling for his head. People wanted him to be fired midseason already. Doesn't have his quarterback, Sam Darnold, for three games with Mono. And it's just been a disaster. Everything that basically could go wrong for the Jets this year did go wrong. And they lost the game 42-21. But, I mean, watching this game yesterday, Lamar, it's the Lamar Jackson show, right? Like we, at this point, there's no surprise. He's just so dynamic, so efficient, too. Five touchdowns, like we talked about. He only completed 15 passes last night. Five touchdowns. Third of his passes that he completed last night went for touchdowns. 86 rush yards broke Michael Vick's single-season rushing record for a quarterback over 1,000 yards. Just, I mean, all the accolades that you could throw towards Lamar Jackson, they've already been said. We continue to say them. But were you impressed by the Jets last night, Mark? I mean, obviously watching that game, I don't know what you were expecting. If you were expecting them to go in there and play hard, play tough, in a tough environment there in Baltimore in a short week, I mean, they lose by 21, but the game, I mean, you talked about kind of before the show, the, the game kind of did feel closer than that at some points. What, what was your main takeaway? What was your overall thoughts of the Ravens beating the Jets last there night? There were a couple points where if they would have made plays or if the calls would have gone their way, it would have been, been closer. But you didn't expect them to do much going into the game. People don't realize how many injuries they actually do have. Their defense is totally decimated. They had no Jamal Adams. They had no um, – the guy that they signed from the Ravens. and C.J. Mosley, right. He played, Mosley. what, a half? Uh, they a no half qu- this year? Right. They have no Quinn and Williams. Um, 
half there. Like all, all you know, the, Avery Williamson never played at all this year. So there was a couple of plays where uh, Burgess, uh, Burgess Senior, where he just got absolutely buried by the Ravens' offensive line. And uh, I was listening to Bart Scott talk the other day, and he would talk about how when big, big time offensive lines used to come in and play, players would get what they called the bird flu. <laughs> and he was like uh, in his second year, and they were playing the Chiefs on a Monday night, and Ray Lewis was just getting his butt kicked. You know, and he's like, you know, all these guys are, are you know, like guys like Willie Rove, who was like 360 pounds and could run like the wind. And uh, so Lewis was completely like, guys, I need help. Like, you know, they, they're, they're killing me. You know, how many guys do I have on me? And uh, the coach was like, uh, you know, Ray, you only got one guy on you. It's, it's <laughs> Willie Rove, you know. And uh, so he's like, oh, Bart, you want to go in? No, it's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm okay here. <laughs> I'm not ready yet. Um, you know, it was only his second year in the league. So I, I thought it was funny how he would expect as I press on my iPad here. Siri, maybe. Hey, hey Siri. listen, Siri, watch the game. She wants some thoughts, you know? I know. If you want to talk about, you it's know, so easy always how being on. I'm so sure that she watched the game last night and had some a few takes. It's so easy how easy that darn thing goes off. Anytime I, I pick it up, if I'm pressing, like somehow I wind up pressing over. The wrong way. Well, do you have Siri? Do you have the iPad next to you when you're watching the Jets game? Again, no. she probably watched yeah, the game. Yeah, she's like, what are you doing? Saw Sam uh, Darnold, saw Lamar Jackson. like, listen, I want to get in here. I want to talk. Yeah. Um, look, the thing that I expected to, to see from the Jets is just, comp you know, just compete. I thought they competed. Yeah. I thought they were in position to make plays. When you have your third and fourth string or, or you know, practice players, the guys that were on a practice squad that are filling in, what can you really expect? I've been impressed with how Darnold looks. Darnold seems to make good choices, except for you know, in the first half he made a bad choice. But a lot of that, I think, is he just wasn't used to the people that he was throwing the ball to. You saw he had really good um, – the tight ends that he worked with early in the year, they, they seemed to work well together. Um, he threw a couple of touchdown passes to uh, one of the, the, the tight ends in the Redskins game. Seems like he has good continuity with, it, with a couple of those guys. So that's good to look for for next year. But when you have new guys coming out every week, it's hard to develop any type of consistency with them. There were a couple of plays last night where guys didn't finish running their route. I think that, that definitely hurt them. But you've seen what you needed to see from him in year two. Most people wanted to see a guy that improved. He definitely has improved. He's looked very good sometimes. There are things that he does really well. Like he runs, throws on a run very well. The only guy I, I – like, Aaron Rodgers, we know, does that extremely well. He's not in Aaron Rodgers' class, obviously, but he's, he's good at that. Not to, that's hard to do. He has a lot of uh, – almost like he has much better accuracy when he's, when he's uh, on the run. The Jets' offensive line for as decimated as they were, I thought they played pretty well last night. I thought they gave him a chance to throw the ball. And they ran – they were able to run the ball okay. They ran for over 100 yards. But it's a Ravens team. I was, I was telling you, it's like there are times in the game you don't realize they're dominating like they're dominating. And I see, okay, they have 100. I'm like, the Jets have done pretty good against the run. And they have like 150 yards at halftime. They wind up with 219 for the game. You know, Lamar Jackson only throws 15 passes, five of them for touchdowns. It just looks easy. And even on that, you know, what, what kind of guts do you have to go for the fourth and one at your, what, 28-yard line or the, the – your opponent's 28-yard line, or actually, I, I don't know how it is, but they, they were 28 yards from their own end zone. Yeah, you know, you're on 28. And fourth and one, yeah. and they decide to go for it only with, like, I think it was, like, 
at that point, 28-7. Or, or it's like the game was, I mean, it was over, but it really wasn't taught. Like, they didn't get that. You're giving the Jets the ball basically in the red zone. Right. And not only that, but they decided to pass the ball. Like, you know how dominant they are running the ball. You figure they can get a yard in their sleep. They do a play-action pass and kind of breaks down. He's able to roll out of the pocket, and at tight end, Andrews was open all game. I mean, they even had a touchdown call back. That was really weird because I'm watching it, and I'm like, they threw a, a flag like almost like two minutes after the play was over. And you see Jackson's in his, you know, in his warm-ups yeah, uh, on the sideline. He side has the, uh, the jacket on. He's yeah. getting warmed up. And all of a sudden, he's like, oh, he's wait. He's, like, taking, taking selfies with the We have to go back. No, I, I, I know. I, I'd never – there have been so many weird calls like that. Like, Robbie Anderson, you could have called a pass interference in the end zone. But, I mean, you know, I'm glad they didn't. I hate that rule. I really do, where they can review pass interference. They only put it in because of what happened in the Saints last year. They didn't know what to do. I mean, they made a bad call. It's like you can't reverse bad calls that happen. And you, they've made it so much worse this year. I, hate, I, I can't stand that when a play is over, like either where he scores or he doesn't score, you know, like against the Dolphins, okay, that, that game against the Dolphins. The end of the game, the Dolphins stopped them on, you know, on third and, and long, and now it's going to be fourth and long, and they never view a penalty, like – I couldn't it, believe it. It, it. That was so bad. And, and, you know, the Dolphins played well enough to win. I mean, it was an ugly game. It was just a t- typical ugly game between those two teams. But the Dolphins really have played hard under this guy, under Flores. Mm-hmm. Um, and they deserved, I thought, to win that game. How many times in my life have I seen that call go against the Jets? And it's like in a game that really doesn't matter. And a matter of fact, it probably is worse for them to lose because it drops them a little lower. And it, I, I don't really care – about where they draft or who they're going to draft. I, I, I would prefer that they draft higher up because it gives them more options if they want to move the pick. So that hurt them. It would have put them ahead of the Dolphins. It would have given them, you know, they, they would have lost the season series, so they would have had the edge over the Dolphins uh, as far as getting the, 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 the better pick. And all the other teams that were in their class, like the Redskins, the Redskins wind up losing, but they, I think they still have three wins. Uh, the Bengals lost, but you know they're not going to get the they're not going to get the Bengals. The Cardinals wound up losing, so it's like, the, the, but the Broncos won, so it's like teams that needed to lose kind of they, they would have been in a really good position to get a, like a top three, top four pick, which is real, which would really help them as far as they're negotiating. That and is to that's beat the long the, gone, but to be yeah, to beat the Dolphins like that on a call that you know, if you feel good about that win. There's something wrong because I, I don't think the referees should decide a game. And, like, they still have to make the field goal and everything. But as an NFL fan, I don't like that rule. And it robbed the Dolphins of a, of a win. Even though I'm a Jet fan, I, I still think that was a bad call. And games should not be decided like that. And what, what do you feel about it? No, that's the – right, to go back to that game, that, it's the crazy part, too, because under two minutes – so, obviously, a coach can't challenge, right? We've really right. never seen – the replay booth stop a game to replay a pass interference. Right? Usually the only time we've seen a challenge for pass interference is when a coach asks for it, throws the red flag, and until maybe three weeks ago, we've rarely seen overturn, no matter how egregious, no matter how obvious, one way or another. We've never really seen the call in the field overturned. Now, the last few weeks, I'm not sure if it's, you know, directed from up top or Al Riveron finally put his glasses on and kind of realized, like, what are we doing here? These are mm-hmm. obvious calls we have to fix. 
But finally, last three weeks, about a month now, we've finally seen some reversals and some big spots as well, like you said. But that was the most shocking part. I don't. I have to look this up. I believe it was. I mean, at least the first time I was watching a game where we saw the booth. And again, under two minutes, they have to do it. A booth stopped the game to replay on their own a pass interference and, yeah. then, re and then reverse it. I mean, it was pass interference. Let's be honest. The, yeah, it was. The defender grabbed. Um, I forgot the receiver, but pulled his shoulder, kind of turned him, opened him up, and turned him. So by rule, it was pass interference. But to me, watching it live, it didn't look egregious enough to warrant stopping the game. And like you said, because the success rate and the overturn rate is still in the 20s because of how many calls were not changed early on in the year, I could not believe, especially like you said, at the time, 3rd and 17, the place where it is under two minutes left uh, with the game on the line, that, like you said, basically handed the Jets the win once they got that first down. And basically all, as long as Sam Ficken kicked the field goal correctly, it would be the game would be over and the Jets win. So it's a tough, like you said, it's tough loss for Brian Flores. Better for the for the Dolphins in the long in the long run, like you said, to get a higher pick and get a better player. But to your credit too, like the, the Dolphins the first month of the year, I really thought was going to be the worst team in the NFL. I thought there was no way they'd win any game. Their numbers were trending too in terms of point differential, yards given up, yards gained. They were trending towards the worst team in history of the NFL. So yeah. I thought for sure. First three games where they got it was like the worst point off, yeah. Worst point differential, the lowest yards uh, gained, the lowest points scored, the most yards given up. Like any, every stat that you could possibly have as a team that you're bad at, the Dolphins were at the top of that list. And like you said, to credit, the second half of the year, starting you know even before that Jets game, they got the first one of the year. They're playing hard, they're playing tougher, and now they beat the Colts, they beat the Jets, they have three wins on the year, so they're playing tough, and then now they've been a tougher out, which I'm honestly kind of surprised that they've kept Ryan Fitzpatrick as a starter this long because you kind of knew, like, we, we see it, Ryan Fitzmagic, right? He has those games where he's just unstoppable and leads his team to victory no matter who's around him. The Dolphins aren't in business to win games. I understand Brian Flores is trying to do the best he can. I'm shocked that the front office and ownership has allowed him to start uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick as long as he has, to be honest, because I figured that Losing games is not, is not in their best interest. I mean, sorry, is in their best interest. Winning games is not. And again, they're playing hard. They're still at the top of the draft with only three wins, but they've had a few close calls in terms of almost winning games. And like you said, maybe that Jets game they should have won if it wasn't for a bad call. Um, but credit to the Dolphins for playing a lot harder, a lot tougher on all all phases of the ball as well. And it's been uh, definitely impressive to watch. And like I said, Brian Flores really now at least cemented himself, definitely coming back next year, and maybe you know is a better coach that we gave him credit for the first half of the year. But I do want to get back to a point you just made about the Ravens. Now, I did feel the same way as yesterday. You said you're watching the game. You didn't really feel like the Ravens were dominating or that explosive offense. Boom, you look up. That's like 130 rushing yards at halftime. They finished with 218. And as the Jets, you know, the Jets came in, the number two rushing defense in the NFL. 88 yards per game. So they've been very stout when it comes to the run. They shut down Josh Jacobs and the Raiders a few weeks ago. The Raiders were really good at running the ball when they came to MetLife. The Jets absolutely shut him down, took him out of the game, and dominated that game. And for the Ravens to rush for over six, almost six and a half yards of carry is just, to me, shows, like, just how tough they are to stop because they kind of almost lull you to sleep. Like, they'll just get – they're content with running the ball right at the middle, getting five yards at a time, five yards at a, at a clip, staying ahead of the chains, and then kind of sucking you into where you're like, all right, got to stop the run. Mark Ingram is getting high. we got to, you know, try to load up the box to stop him. All of a sudden, boom, that's when that play action comes in so, so tough. And now – you see so many guys, whether it's Marquise Brown, Mark Angel, like you said, was running right open a few times. It's because now the teams are starting to sell out for the run. Because if you have just a normal base defense, we have four, three or four defensive linemen, three or four linebackers, you have seven guys in the box, you can't stop the Ravens. 
and they'll kill you. They'll just, they are content and satisfied with taking four, five, six yards of pop and just methodically drive down the field and just run the ball down your throat. Whether it's Lamar Jackson, Gus Edwards, Mark Ingram, like they have no problem just lining up, smash mouth football, run after run after run. And that's why, like you said, Lamar Jackson completed just 15 passes. Insane. He's attempted the least amount of passes in the NFL for a starting quarterback. He also leads the league in, in touchdown passes with 33. He's insanely efficient because of how well the run game gets established and how, well, and how hard teams have to sell out to stop the run because they can't do it with just their normal defense. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Does any team right now have the makeup to stop the Ravens? They don't because no team right now is big enough on the defensive line to stop the run fast enough as linebackers to not only cover the tight ends. And again, we see Mark Andrews feasting right now anytime a, to, a linebacker tries to match up with them. But not just that, no one's fast enough to stop Lamar Jackson. The, the 49ers are the best-built team to try and stop the Ravens. They have a great defensive line, a fast and athletic front seven linebacking core. They even had trouble. And they had the rain, too. So you got to think, pouring rain has to slow down the run game a little bit, make the ball slippery, make it hard to throw, and the Ravens still won that game. Granted, it was a low-scoring game. I believe it was 2017 or 23-20. I believe it was 23-20. So it was a, one of the lowest-scoring games the Ravens had. They still found a way to win the game. So I don't know how any team in the AFC right now can stack up Stop the run because right now the Ravens will run the ball down your throat. And until you sell out, bring eight, nine guys blitz to try to stop the run. Lamar Jackson will just continue to, they'll continue to run the ball. And when they do that, play action, guys running wide open, and not to mention no one can contain Jackson. And this is a guy, too, we were talking about this yesterday, or I'm sorry, before the show. Lamar Jackson, for all, you know, the talk that he's a running quarterback again, he breaks Michael Vick's record for most rushing yards by quarterback, still two games to go, which is just insane, over 1,000 yards. But he looks to pass. That's something with Michael Vick. Like, Michael Vick had one read, maybe two reads, then he would take off and run. Sometimes he would just drop back, not even look at his receivers, and just take off and run. Lamar Jackson sits back there, rolls out, moves in the pocket. He is throwing first, and if he's forced thrown, he'll have to run. He rarely drops back one read and, and ducks, takes the ball down. Even, I remember, there's a huge run he had Early on in the first half where just the Jets blitz, there's no one spying him, and he just had what looked like 30 or 40 yards in front of him to run. And he still was hesitant of running because he's looking to throw the ball first, which makes him so dangerous. Because now anytime you want to put a spy on him or have you know play a zone defense where all the defenders are looking at Lamar Jackson trying to key on him, he's just sitting back there and picking apart defenses. So to me, again, we talked about, I talked about this on Tuesday, about how the 49ers might be the hardest team uh, to get out in the playoffs because they can play any style they want. The, four, the, the Ravens are basically the same exact team offensively as the 49ers, except they have a more dynamic quarterback and a better throwing quarterback than Jimmy Grapple and Lamar Jackson. It's crazy. I, I just, again, I'm buying more and more into the Ravens. I feel like we've talked about this a lot, and a lot of people are, you know, really on the Ravens bandwagon, so it's hard to kind of come up with a different take or a different perspective on just how, how well they're playing. But that's just my biggest take yesterday is I don't know how teams are going to stop them. They, and, and I'm not talking about just this year. This, I'm kind of repeating myself, but going forward, no team has a defensive line that is big enough, strong enough to push around this Ravens offensive line. Because, again, credit the Ravens. They have one of the best offensive lines, most physical offensive lines in the NFL. And when you're running four, five, six yards of carry with a downhill back like Mark Ingram, then having the play action be so effective, defenses don't have all three levels, defensive line, linebacker, and secondary, to match up with the Ravens. No team does in the NFL. Again, the 49ers are the best built and the best equipped, and they still couldn't do it. So this is going to be a problem, not just this year. I think this is one of those things where we've seen so many young guys burst onto the scene, 
teams are unfamiliar with how well they are. We're seeing in baseball all the time, right? Young players burst on because pitchers don't know how to pitch them. And then eventually the book is out. We find out how to defend them. And all of a sudden now that player goes into a prolonged slump because the, the book is out, right? Same thing with young players in football. The tape is out. Once you're on tape, once teams and defense coordinators see what you do well and take that away, adjustments are made, and then it's back up to that young player to readjust to the adjustments made. Well, right now, no team has adjusted to the Ravens and what they can do. And this is not just a Lamar Jackson adjustment. This is an entire Ravens offensive philosophy adjustment. And that's why I don't think any time, uh, any team anytime soon will be able to adjust and be good enough defensively to stop the Ravens. Uh, do, you, do you agree with that? Disagree? Well, I think it's something that it's going to take time. I mean, like right. any other great offense. I mean, you saw how when the Rams, you know, the greatest show on turf, when they started, they, it seemed like, geez, how are you going to stop this team? I remember when they lost to the Patriots that year in Brady's first year on a Sunday night in Foxborough. They, I believe the final score was like 31-17 or something like that where it, was, it wasn't a blowout, but you were still like, well, this team is definitely not going to be able to beat them if they meet up again. No one thought the Patriots were going to be where they were. Right. So when they're playing them in the Super Bowl, they were like a 14-point underdog or something like that. But they were able to figure out a way how to slow down that offense. Just like when Belichick, when he was defensive coordinator for the Giants, and they played that Bills team who beat the Raiders 51-3 to in the AFC Championship game. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was just an absolute route. And that Raider team wasn't really bad. You know, Bo Jackson wound up getting hurt and played his last game a week before against the Bengals. Uh, but they absolutely manhandled them, and they had the, the attack offense. But somehow Belichick, you know, came up with a scheme where you only get to rush a couple guys and just sit back. And the Giants wide receiver, I mean, the, the Bills wide receivers like Andre Reid said, like, he was so beaten up at the end of that game because anytime he got the ball, he just got hit and they abused their running back. But anytime that Thurman Thomas wanted to run the ball, I think he only had like 15-something carries. He had over 120, 130 yards or something. So you know you're, you're going you're to give up something in order to prevent something. So what are you going to really give up to the Ravens that you're going to be able to stop? I don't know if you can, unless you just put like 11 defensive backs on the field and say, okay, well, we're just going to – and then they'll just run the ball. Like, that's the thing. Like, yeah. you said, what are you going to give up? But whatever you give up, the Ravens are so good at, like, they're so good at running the ball. Lamar Jackson is crazy efficient, and because they run the ball so well, the play action is deadly. Not to mention, if you take, you know, take the pass away, take the run away, you still have Lamar Jackson to contain in the pocket. Mm-hmm. So, like you said, whatever you want to take away, right? If you want to make Lamar Jackson, let's say, a pocket quarterback, he'll pick you apart. If you, want to, if you were going to give up the run and basically try to take away the pass, well, the Ravens, like, Lamar Jackson, John Harbaugh, Greg Roman, they're content with running the ball 50 times. They'll run it right down your throat. They'll run the same play. So it's like you said, like you, you want to die like death by a thousand paper cuts, just have six yards of pop, six yards of pop, six yards of pop, and basically just get punched in the mouth down the field each drive. Like, like to your point, I'm with you. Like you have yep. to give up something to try to stop something else because the Ravens right now are doing everything at an elite level. Mm-hmm. Whatever mm-hmm. you give up, they'll just exploit and they'll take. And, and not to mention, too, if you try to do that, if you try to sell out, like they'll – Teams aren't even stopping one of their phases. That's, uh, I guess, the point I'm trying to make. But here's, here's the thing. Lamar Jackson, last seven games, 22 touchdowns, one pick, 70% completion percentage. That, that's insane. Right. And for a guy in his second year, and a guy that they didn't think was going to be a real NFL quarterback because he ran kind of a gimmick offense at Louisville, which you know now that when he goes back to pass the ball, he, the guy's really sound 
fundamentally. I mean, his footwork is excellent. That's what Steve Young always would say. You can judge a quarterback by his footwork. They don't. They made a, uh, an effort early not to really judge Jackson by his throws, but how his footwork. And whoever was teaching him in Baltimore, they really did a good job. And the Jets are just showing a highlight here. Jets one of the one of their first drives. They actually got a hard hit on him, which you really don't see much. But you could see, too, that this Raven offensive line, they just abused some of the Jet linebackers. I mean, they any time that there was a sweep or any, any type of motion where the, the, the play was to the outside, these guys, the Jets linebackers, just got mauled. But these, they are, they're all beasts coming after them. You know, Mark Ingram, who was a— the first Heisman Trophy winner ever at the University of Alabama, which is hard enough to believe. Crazy, right? Um, is a very good running back, but he looks like a, one of the best ever in this offense. And when you when they line up in that uh, that shot, not, not the shotgun, like a but pistol, the, right? The when pistol, you have like yeah. And Mark Ingram in the shotgun behind Lamar Jackson, yes. And they do the fake, even if the defensive end reads it right. You still can't catch Lamar Jackson. You still can't outrun him. I, I don't care who it is. Unless it's Derek Thomas, which, you know, who knows if, right. if a guy like Thomas or Lawrence Taylor, like, if, maybe maybe they would have been able to stop him, but I don't even know those so guys. So what like, you're saying is you need a Hall of Fame, Hall of Fame type linebacker yeah. to even have a chance. At get, and, like, Troy Aikman said in the broadcast yesterday, he was – because like they're talking about tries to ways to stop the Ravens, right? He said he's against the spy on fast quarterbacks because you don't have anyone in your team right. fast enough to contain Lamar Jackson, right? Which, like you said, it's another problem too. If you even if you're reading right, he could still beat you to the edge. Like you said, the Ravens have a great offensive line. They built this team perfectly. And again, it sounds like we're you know the the Ravens deserve so much credit. Ozzie Newsome, you know his last draft when he got Lamar Jackson and built a lot of his pieces around the Ravens. We told us a few weeks ago when all in when they hired Greg Roman to run a run first offense. They mm-hmm. have a great offensive line. Mark Ingram, like you said, looks like a superstar because he is the perfect downhill back, physical guy you need running in between physical, the yeah, tackles. He is physical, real physical. He yeah. gets the team jacked. We see him in the post game press conference talking about Lamar, hyping up Lamar Jackson. He's one of those hype guys that you need um, that kind of sets the tone early. Like you said, Lamar Jackson runs the ball a, a ton, but he doesn't get many big hits because he's smart. And not to mention, too, it's so well blocked that he's not taking in a lot of shots in the pocket. And he's smart. He runs out of bounds or slides. And most of the time, too, it's well blocked. Not only in the pocket, but down the field. You have big receivers like Miles Boykin now having thrown a few blocks. Like These receivers are also selling out, um, same the tight ends, and blocking down the field and preventing Lamar Jackson from getting susceptible to big hits. And we talked about this earlier, too. There's no stopping them because the Ravens are tied with the Vikings for the third least pass attempts in the NFL, right? Pass happy NFL, throwing the ball wow, wins the games, establishing the pass. The Vikings, with, you know, with Kirk Cousins, yeah. But they've each thrown the ball. They're tied for third least, 388 pass attempts. Lamar Jackson leads the league with 33 touchdowns. And again, one extra game right now on Thursday night, seven more than second, which is Russell Wilson. Mm-hmm. So it's just the crazy efficiency that he has and the guys that are throwing to that are wide open because everyone is selling off for the run. The, the Ravens are so balanced, and again, good luck to the Patriots, good luck to the Chiefs, the Texans, the Titans. Whoever has to play the Ravens, good luck, well, that, because it, that is going to be a hell of a matchup on the defensive side. Here's a, a trivia question for people, okay, if, if we were going to throw out our trivia question for today. Lamar Jackson, 22 touchdowns, one pick in his last seven games. Who was the guy that intercepted him? Oh, that's a great question. I feel like I do remember a pick that he threw, and now I can't. Did he throw an interception against the 49ers? No. 
then I don't, who is the who do you throw a pick against? Well, we, we'll, we'll keep that open. See if anybody okay, all right. To, okay. You want to give us a call? 1-877-909-9977. Who is the last player to intercept a pass on Lamar Jackson? He was hit 22 to 1, 22 touchdowns, 22 one interception. Touchdowns the last, last, the last seven, seven games. games. Who is the last person to intercept Lamar Jackson? And the last one I want to make here, at least from the Ravens side, Troy Aikman again brought this up. It's just mind blowing to see like the youth of this league and how great of a spot the NFL is in with, with great young quarterbacks. Lamar Jackson. If he wins the MVP, right, he will be younger winning the NFL MVP than Joe Burrow, who we assume will win the Heisman, wins. The, like Joe Burrow will be older winning the Heisman than Lamar Jackson will be winning the MVP. How, like, that's just to show you how young Lamar Jackson is, how much he's developed one year to the next, and just still, despite how well he's playing, he will win the MVP this year. He's, his ceiling is still higher than what he is now. His potential is still more than just what he's doing this year. That's, that's a scary, scary thought. And the Ravens can continue to keep this team together. Good luck because, like you said, they will be a force to be reckoned with for a very long time. I just want to wrap up one thing with the Jets before we wrap up here. To your point, too, like they were competitive yesterday. And Sam Darnold, I love the point you made. He is more accurate, more dynamic when he rolls out of the pocket, which I think is a good thing for the Jets, right? He's, he's not a run-first quarterback. and doesn't really even leave the pocket too early, but – He's mobile in the pocket. He's not afraid to get out there and get on his feet and create plays. And I think it helps, too, getting his receivers open because, like you said, he's working with a lot of young guys, a lot of new faces. Tough to really get on the same page with a lot of new receivers. Rolling out of the pocket helps. And it's nice, too, you forget he's only a second-year starter. So although, you know, Lamar Jackson, same thing, they're in the same draft class, you see Lamar Jackson's doing compared to what Sam Darnold's doing. The progress is there, and I think he's slowly building. So like you said, where you're seeing enough this year, just especially considering what happened to start the year, just how brutal it was and how disappointing it was. I think there is definitely progress, and despite being doubled up last night, I think Sam Donald played well. I mean, this Ravens defense also right now is on a high. They're similar to, like, the 2015 Panthers, where right now everything is clicking on both sides of the ball, and they're just riding that wave of momentum. So it's kind of tough to go on a short week, go into their house and beat them. But outside of that one pick before – uh, halftime that really kind of, you know, the Jets, if they wanted any chance of getting back in the game, that was their chance to score there right before the half to cut it within a touchdown game. But other than that, like you said, James Crowder drops maybe the easiest, most wide open touchdown we'll have. The next play, boom, on the run, tight window, throws it in there, fits in there, nice catch by James Crowder, great throw by Sam Donald. It's that kind of bounce back and resolve that you'd like to see from a guy that you think could be your franchise quarterback. I, I do think, I'm with you, Mark White. I think it was nice to see. Lamar, uh, excuse me, Sam Darnold really playing well, bouncing back in, in a tough circumstance in a hostile environment against a really good defense with a banged-up offense. I think all, all things considered, he played pretty well, um, and it was at least a positive going forward. So, Well, here, uh, we, we, we talked about the other day through 12 games, they were the only teams to, to do a cert, certain amount, have the balance they had rushing and passing. Through 15 games, or week 15 now, which is, you know, there's still, there's still two more games left in the season for the Ravens. Mm-hmm. So through 15 weeks, the Ravens are the only team in NFL history that have 2,800 passing yards and 2,800 rushing yards. They're balanced. Like you said, they're balanced as ever could be. They have, they have over ni- they have 19 rushing TDs and 33 passing TDs mm-hmm. with, with Jackson. There's only a handful of teams that have had those numbers through 15 weeks in yeah. both, both categories. So it, it's what they're doing is not just 
revolutionary, but it's like for all the things we've seen in football, for all the changes that have come across the last, really, we didn't see this many mm, changes. <clears throat> I guess at first it was when they changed the rules and then passing kind of took off in the, in the late 70s, early 80s. Then you kind of had Marino. Then there was kind of a dry spell a little bit where, you know, you had Marino, you had Elway. Elway was a guy that people thought was – you know, like no one, they'd never seen a quarterback with his arm strength and his speed. But yet every time he went to the Super Bowl, he lost. But he was a guy that would like single-handedly win games because of his ability to keep drives alive. You, you saw how clutch he was, how many games he led, game-winning drives. A guy like Marino was great, but he was never really good enough to win. Uh, first of all, on the road in the playoffs, only one road playoff game. But then they never make it back to the Super Bowl. Then you had, uh, like, Brett Favre, who was the, like, the epitome of toughness, like a guy that, uh, the, the, the gunslinger. The gunslinger. That would never, you know, even kind of spit in the eye of, uh, you know, a mistake and, and, and go out and do the same thing. But there was a, a level of stupidity that came with that, too, because there were, there were times that that really did cost right. him. That's why the gunslinger, you know, it's good and bad, right? right? It's, a, it's a good and bad moniker to have because, like you said, mm-hmm. yeah, a little bit of recklessness in there, but – some risk-taking and also some great throws as well. Mm-hmm. Then you had, like, a guy like Bledsoe who was supposed to be the next thing. I remember Rick Meyer when they, they were drafted 1-2 in the NFL in, like, 92 or 93. Then, then it's like the Peyton, era, a Peyton Manning era started. And that's when quarterbacks really became more of a mental game along with a physical game. But then you also saw guys passing for 4,000 yards just explode. Mm-hmm. And it was, like, the norm now. Guys had to pass for 4,000 yards. Otherwise, they really weren't an efficient quarterback. And then, then, it, then what, like, Drew Brees kind of added to, okay, well, not only do you have to throw for a certain amount, but you have to have a certain amount of uh, completion percentage that's, like, over 65%. Most of the guys in the 80s and 90s, their completion percentage was in the 50s. No more. You have to be in at least in the, in the mid-60s. 65, okay? I would say, is, like, the benchmark now, right? Where, like, anything below is, like, yeah, yeah that's not right. Like, it's, like, what are you doing? You I mean, you look at Brady this year. He's got, like, 61, 62, which is, like, the second lowest in his career. And then there was a, a brief time where you know, Michael Vick came in and it was like, oh, wow, we've never seen anything like this before. Because not only was he fast, but he was big and he had an unbelievable arm. He could throw it like 80 yards when he was like, you know, falling backwards. So you've seen the game change a bunch. But what the Ravens do is, is really old school because you, can, you have to be able to stop them running the ball. And then that's, that sets up their passing to where, you know, you, you're watching a game, you're like, geez, we have a million cuts all over us, but I, I don't feel bad. <laughs> it's sort of like with the Patriots, too, right? Because, like, Tom Brady and that page Alvin's kind of, they work the same way but different, right? Because kind of how many times have we seen Tom Brady use backs? Like, a lot of their run game is throwing three or four yards underneath routes to their running backs, and they just get eight, nine, you know, yards a chunk. It's sort of the same thing, right? Because outside of 2007, when they had Randy Moss and that offense was unstoppable, would you ever describe the Patriots offense as explosive? I wouldn't. But well, it's the same yeah. sort of thing. Like, the Ravens are doing handing the ball off to their running backs and keeping it with Lamar Jackson. But the, the Patriots sort of did it throwing to Kevin Falk, throwing the ball now to James White out of the backfield, and just kind of getting these five, six, seven-yard chunks at a time with these underneath routes. So it's sort of like, you know, that was almost an extension of the Patriots' run game. But now, like, to your point, right, the Ravens 
are going old school, throwing it back, and they are just punching you in the mouth, playing physical football. To your point, with throwing the ball being so prevalent, with so many rules geared towards the offense, making it easier to throw the ball, completion percentage going up, touchdown passes going up, yards going up, all because it's so much easier to throw the ball now, and you throw the ball way more than you ever did. Teams are, defenses now are putting more defensive backs in, having defensive linemen that are faster and quicker instead of being big and stop the run, and linebackers now, again, more athletic, geared towards speed, sideline to sideline, instead of being strong and tough up the middle to stop the run. So that, like, to your point, the Ravens are taking advantage, zigging when everyone else is zagging, and now really playing to the weaknesses of their opponents. And that's why, like, they're just so, to your point, so unstoppable because they're going against the grain and in an era where passing the ball is prevalent, where quarterbacks are, you know, the big money makers and winning the game by throwing the ball on your arm is important. Ravens said, ah, hell with that. We'll just run the ball down your throat. You can't stop us. And no team has. 12-2. and two. So, like you said, it's, it's a renaissance in terms of the Ravens throwing it back to – and they're not doing anything different, to your point. I mean, cleaning up a little bit, making you know, a little more window dressing, maybe adding some modern concepts to basically an old-school smash-mouth run game. But other than that, they're just you know, punching you in the mouth, mm-hmm. and no one, no one can stop it. So, and, and it's like you come away from it thinking, how in the world can we stop this offense? Because if you commit to stopping the run – which you really can't do because even if you commit to stopping the, the, like the basic runs, which would be you know handoffs or play actions where they give to Ingram and, and, and not Jackson, or say Jackson does keep the ball, I guess that would be considered like a basic f- formation where you, that you run out of. Those types of things, even if you take that away from them, the ability for them to play action pass off that is going to kill you because either you're you know you saw last night one of the plays where they got a pass interference called in the end zone they had a linebacker one of the Jets linebackers on their wide receiver so they uh, Marquise Brown the fastest receiver right. for the Ravens and I thought he would did the best he could I mean it was a obvious penalty but I mean right it's a linebacker it's on hard to stay fan. with it's yeah linebacker and receiver what else are you going to expect hard to stay with that guy right. when you're a you know six six five you know 260 and you can't run that fast anyway you know, right, but that's so. what the Ravens do. Like that, they scheme to put you in bad spots. Like, to your point exactly, they schemed and to the point where the Jets defense was forced to sell out on the run, make some sacrifices. They hoped that putting a linebacker and bringing an extra safety in the box, maybe spy on Jackson or try to keep him in the pocket. Now you put a linebacker and a receiver. Like you said, he just he saw that right away, threw it up, and worst case scenario, knew basically he's not going to intercept it, so I'll just get a, either he'll catch it or we'll get a penalty. And that's what happened. The ball's on the one yard line. The Ravens score a touchdown. Uh, a few plays later. And this is one stat I kind of want to bring up here to highlight just the dynamics, you know, just how dynamic Lamar Jackson is. So last night he threw five touchdown passes, obviously, mm. 80, over 80 rushing yards. That's his second career game where he's thrown five touchdowns, had over 80 yards rushing. Only one other quarterback, that's only happened one other time in NFL history. Cam Newton did it once back in 2015. Say again? Throwing five touchdowns and rushing for over 80 yards. Second time Lamar Jackson's ever done his career. It's only happened once ever since. So it happened three times in NFL history. He's done it twice. Cam Newton back in 2015 did it once. So like, to your point, like you try to stop the run. He'll just pick you apart with the pass. And then once the pass is getting established and now you're dropping back, he'll if there's a running lane, he'll take it. But that's only after he looks option one, two, three, maybe looks back to option one. Lamar Jackson wants to throw the ball, which makes it so deadly because it's like to your point, running quarterback, you can do enough. And there's enough now athletic defenders on the field to where if you have a guy that wants to run the ball, you put a shutdown corner on the best receiver that he looks at, now it's easier to contain 
but because he looks at all the options, has two dynamic tight ends that are already matchup nightmares. Just to your point, like the Ravens offense and defenses do adjust. I think it'll take longer than normal for defense to adjust this Ravens offense because personnel doesn't match up. No one has the speed or the athletic ability, coverage ability to stop the run, stop the pass, stop Lamar Jackson. Can't do all three. Really, teams aren't even doing one right now. And if you do one, they'll still beat you in the other two. And again, even you know when they shut down like they were against the 49ers, they still find ways to win. They still do enough to win the game. So, so. so you're saying that was Jackson's done that three times twice. this year? Twice. No, no, twice in his career. It's happened only one other time okay. ever in history, Cam Newton. So, again, it's just like it shows how dynamic he is. You do it in the air, you do it on the ground. And you do it both in the same game. It's not one or the other. It's both in the same game. They incorporate the run just as, just as well as they incorporate the pass. And it's just tip the hat to Greg Roman, John Harbaugh, Lamar. Like every, everyone in that Ravens organization deserves a hat tip. Well, because he's, he's considered a running quarterback three times he's run for five touchdowns this year. But that, that's, that's what's so like, fascinating, right? Because, right, everyone wants to label him a runner. And I'll be honest, coming out of the draft, I did not think Lamar Jackson was going to be successful. I thought his style was to be, you know, run first. And it, it, we've seen so many running back, running quarterbacks, right, just have success at the college level just because they're faster, more athletic than everyone else. Get to the NFL, it's a different speed. Everyone's faster. They can catch up to you. But Lamar Jackson and the way the Ravens built this offense, that's key to this year. Because last year, you know, the offense for the Ravens was dynamic at times. We get to the playoffs. Joey Bosa and that Chargers front seven, especially their front four, just absolutely battled up Lamar Jackson and shut him down. They, tried, they made him a pocket quarterback, and he was too inconsistent to make plays with his arm. This year, because they revamped the entire offense, basically catered to every Lamar strength, it's so hard to stop. And like you said, you, whatever you try to take away, it's hard to. And he has really, to your point, crushed that running quarterback moniker. Right? Everyone wants to say he's run first, he's a running quarterback, he's a running back that just throws the ball sometimes. Leads the league, 33 touchdown passes, seven more than his close competitor, which is Russell Wilson. And over 1,000 yards, beating Michael Vick's record. So he's throwing the ball and running the ball at the same time, which is just a matchup nightmare. And, again, credit to the Ravens for going all in on this and credit John Harbaugh because it's crazy. I remember last year we were talking about, will he be fired? Is he on the hot seat? After Joe Flacco gets hurt, the Ravens lose at home to the Steelers heading to the bye. Things were not so sure um, in Baltimore that John Harbaugh would be back and his team make the playoffs. They switched Lamar Jackson, and he single-handedly helped turn that franchise around. So – Hat tip to Lamar Jackson. Again, the Jets, used to your point, Mark, were competitive last night. I think Sam Donald played well enough to show you some things going into the offseason that he will be a legit cornerstone for this team moving forward. But in the end, again, the Ravens moved to 12-2, and win the AFC North second year in a row, 10 wins in a row. And now if the Patriots and or Chiefs lose, will clinch the number one seed in a, or at least clinch a bye in the AFC and that number one seed uh, looking promising for them as they will be tough out if teams have to go to Baltimore. Jets fall to 5-9, and 42-21 again, the final from Baltimore. So we come back, we'll quickly talk a little bit about the cultural playoff here. Just want to get Mark's thoughts, but we will be joined by Peter Wiseman, not only of Dynasty Sports, Mark's former co-host. So it'll be exciting to talk to Peter, not just some NFL. We'll talk about, you know, can anyone top the Ravens? But also he is very big into NFL history. He has his all-22 all-time team uh, in the NFL, the best played every single position he has. Obviously, that's on the heels of the NFL All-100 team that's being put out now every Friday. Uh, so we'll get his thoughts on who the best players at every position. We'll, we'll see if he agrees or disagrees with some of the all-time team that the NFL has came out. A lot more I'll offset NFL hot st- uh, MLB excuse me, hot stove as well. So the morning boys, a ton still to get to on this Friday morning. Mark Ever Kelly, Ryan Hickey with you on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.
You're, you're, you're listening to the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You're, you're listening to the Morning Boys on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back to this Friday morning sports here with Ryan Hickey, Mark Everett Kelly here on Worldwide Sports Radio Network. We have as our guest now someone who has uh, dwindled in podcasting for a while. He ran Rivalry Sports Network. He has been a writer and someone who's been doing podcasts for a number of years. He was my, uh, my co-host for a little while uh, back in 2016. Uh, when we teamed up and uh, we, we did some, we had some really good guys that we interviewed. We actually interviewed Jerry Kramer one time. Um, we interviewed, you know, Neil Ever from ESPN. We had a lot of different guests on our show, but uh, he is a really unique sports fan. One of the most genuine guys I know. And he's also a, an historian, a guy that appreciates his, you know, not just overall history, but a world history and how it pertains to everything. And it is a very, it's, a, it's an honor to have him on as our guest. We got Peter Wiseman here. Peter, how you doing, buddy? It's Mark Kelly. Hey, Mark. It's good to talk to you again. I'm doing great this morning. How are you? Great to hear your voice, man. It's been a long time. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I know you've been involved with some things in the last couple of years, but I'm glad you're getting back into sports and the sports world needs you. And, uh, you know, we, we are excited to have you on. So, You've seen the Ravens uh, last night. You've seen uh, this Lamar Jackson. Uh, I've been looking up, you know, how many times. Lamar Jackson this year has thrown for five touchdowns in a game three different times. Uh, Marino, Marino in his whole career only did that five times. And uh, Jackson's done it in a, in a, just in a season three times. Like, it seems like the game is changing. This is a different type of, of offense to, to come up with a way to stop. It's, it's like... A, it's almost like there's something unique and different every year that you have to figure out. What's your view on the Ravens and what you've seen and, and how you would go about stopping them? Well, what this Ravens team has done uh, is not really – it seems like it's reinventing the wheel, but it's not really. All they've done is gone against what every other offense is doing. While other teams are spreading you out, which the Ravens also can do, but while other teams are spreading you out and throwing the ball like crazy all over the field, the Ravens have come up with their own kind of almost like a college offense where it's play action in this direction, but play action where they're running the ball after they fake that they're running the ball, which is an incredible, it's an incredible idea, and uh, it seems to be working for them. But they brought in the power running game when we thought that the power running game was, was gone. Even when Mark Ingram was drafted, you thought this guy is – he was born in the wrong generation. He was born in the wrong era of football. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But now, but now the, the defenses have spread out so much to stop the run that the power, uh, the power running game is now coming back and it's probably going to be in vogue because of Mark Ingram because you, you can't really stop him um, when the threat of Lamar Jackson running the ball up the middle – now you get got this power running back who actually has open lanes to the outside. That's that's something that's really hard to do, to create those open lanes for a power running back. But Lamar Jackson, with his multiple threats, is able to do that, and that's what's making this team so incredible. 
I think what you got to do is you just got to stay in your lanes. You know, like like the most fun, fundamental defense they teach you. You know, don't over pursue. But if you don't over pursue, like you guys were talking about earlier in the hour, uh, last hour, if you don't over pursue, they'll tear you up some other way. So, um, but I, I think the way to beat it is to make sure you stop the run and not worry about the pass. If they get you with the pass here or there, you're going to have to live with that. But this running game is it's a monster, and it's <laughs> they have a way too many heads on that monster to ignore it and to to focus on other things. So, Peter, I just want to follow up what you just said there because I'm totally with you. Like, so me and Mark are totally in agreement here. It's a power run game. It's old school power run game with just new, a little bit, you know, modern concepts. Your window dressing a little bit more. So, what we were talking about is obviously, you know, NFL defense is a job. That's why there's so much power in the NFL because once you put on tape and once you see what you do well, defenses and defensive coaches adjust and are, are pretty good as quickly at slowing other teams down and taking away what you do well. Could be a half a year, could be a full year. To me, like watching this Ravens offense led by Lamar Jackson, I don't see how defenses will adjust anytime soon. I'm talking about, you know, next two, three years. I don't think they'll be able to adjust. Partly because what you said, because they play such an old school power game and because passing is so in vogue and so popular, teams now have built their defenses to stop the pass. So the defensive line is more athletic because they want to get after the quarterback. The linebackers are faster sideline to sideline because they have to cover more tight ends and wide receivers. And obviously the secondary, more defensive backs are put on the field to stop the pass. With the Ravens old school and going power, basically smash mouth for you know running, marking in between the tackles, defenses don't have the personnel in the front four that are like big enough to stop the run, and then have the linebackers and secondary athletic enough to keep up Lamar Jackson or cover these receivers and tight ends. Do you think like how quickly do you think defenses will adjust to the Ravens' offense? Because I don't think just there's enough players and defensive personnel to match up with what the Ravens do in every aspect. I mean, like you said, it, it'll just be a matter of time. The problem with this offense is it's so much different. For the first time, it's so much different than everything else that's out there. When when the running game was more popular and then other teams started to spread out, that was easier to adjust to because it was one or two different players. But now you got teams that are running so many D-backs out there, and and these are the guys now that are going to stop uh, Mark Ingram, and that's going to be very, very difficult. But like you said, if they adjust to that, if they start putting an extra linebacker out there or whatever they would do to cover that, uh, then they have to worry about Lamar Jackson, you know, and I mean, the guy, <laughs> so they got speed and power coming at you and it's all at the same time and they're targeting the same parts of the field. You know, they're, they're shooting right through those lanes. Um, Lamar Jackson likes to go right up the middle. I noticed Mark Ingram likes to go to the outside. It's the exact opposite of what a speed guy and a power guy should, should actually do. So they're, they're aiming Whoever created this offense is brilliant, and they're aiming at the very people that don't have the skills to stop that particular offensive weapon. It's, it's brilliant. Um, I, I think it's going to be very hard to beat because if you adjust your team to beat the Ravens, then you become vulnerable to other teams. And uh, I, I think that it – yes, you could. Do you want to build your team to one team and become vulnerable to everybody else? And I think that that's where the Ravens have the upper hand right now. That's a great point, Peter. I'm totally with you. Like you said, right, because it's such a, you know, in a unique offense, you have to either gear your defense to stop it specifically and get roasted by the other 31 teams or, again, try to stop the other 31 teams and just get burned by the Ravens. It's a tough predicament for defenses. 
to be. And we're talking with Peter Wiseman, not only of Dynasty Sports, former co-host with Mark Everett Kelly. So I want to get into that relationship in just a little okay. bit here. And um, Peter, you also have your all-22 team, the best player every single position, which I want to get to in a second as well here. But I just want to flip over to the NFC side with the 49ers. They obviously had that barn burner against the Saints uh, last week in the Dome. To me, I, I was kind of thinking about this after the game. Like, they can beat you in any style. They can run the ball. They can pass the ball. They can play defense. Are they going to be the toughest out in the playoffs in the NFC? Yeah, I mean, that, that's tough to say because anything can change at any, other, at any time. But I actually think that the 49ers are the best team in the NFL. Maybe I'm just saying that because I'm still a little hurt of what they did to the Packers. <laughs> but this team, this team is solid all the way through. And you've got to remember that the two games, you know, everybody's looking at their, at their uh, win-loss column and saying, you know, they've lost two games. They're not that good as we thought they were. But they lost two games on left-second field goals in games that they could have just as easily won. This is a very solid team. And it's, it's one of those things where the, the team is better than the sum of its parts. When you add everything up, when you look at what's there, it doesn't look that great, but all of these players together, when they're playing together, they seem to make each other all better. And that's that's a scary concept. That's a scary dynamic in a team. Um, Garoppolo, you know, was, when, when he first went there, we thought he was possibly one of the best quarterbacks of all time. Now you see him and he doesn't look all that great, but they win with him. If you look at their record, I, I can't even remember what it is at now because they've been winning more. But I think they're 17-4 and four with him on their, as their starting quarterback and almost the exact opposite when he's not their starting quarterback. That's in the same time period. That's the same players, same team, same coaches, same everything. But just that one player in or out of the lineup makes, you know, flips the team completely around. Um, and that's what I'm saying. They, they seem to feed off of each other. They seem to make each other all better. When, when, that, team, um, when that team is, is like, like you brought up, the, the Ravens are almost impossible to stop. And so when the Ravens and the 49ers met head-to-head, I thought that there was no way that this uh, 49ers defense would be able to stop Lamar Jackson and everything they bring at them because they're, they're more – center towards stopping a pocket passer. But they played them almost equally. And even though they lost the game at the end, there was a good chance that they could have won it. The fact that they were able to morph into the style of defense to be able to stop that attack makes me think that as they play them in the future, this will probably be the one team. You ask me, will teams be able to stop them? If there is a team that will be able to stop them, I believe it's the 49ers. Um We've already seen that the Seahawks can play with them, but other than that, I don't know if anybody in the NFC even has a chance. Yeah, Peter, you mentioned the NFC, and you look, you saw how a lot of people, I think, caught the, thought the Rams were done after the way the Ravens just manhandled them on their home field a couple of weeks ago, beating them 45-6. to six. But you've seen since then, I mean, the Cardinals aren't, they're not one of the better teams, but you've seen the Cardinals play the Niners tough twice, and legitimately be in those games, uh, you know, with a couple minutes left. The Rams come out on a Sunday night, and they beat a very hot team that was kind of like on the level that Baltimore was on. Uh, 
Russell Wilson was having a, a great year. He was up there for MVP. Him and Lamar Jackson were doing a lot of the, you know, he's not the runner Lamar Jackson is, but uh, the Seahawks were probably considered uh, going into the game last week against the Rams as the best team in the NFC if it weren't for the 49ers because they had beaten them already. So looking at that now, you have, your, you have the Packers, you got the Saints who played a great game against the 49ers the other day. Then you have the NFC West. The Rams at 8-5. and five. Do you think that they'll make the playoffs uh, going against the, uh, I guess their key competition is going to be, right right now they're, you would say that they are on the outside looking in because the, the Vikings have the advantage over them. But do you think that the Rams still are going to be heard from before the season ends? Or, or who do you think is going to be uh, a team that can sneak up on you in the NFC? Well, I think you mentioned them, and, and that's the Vikings. Um, the, the hard part to read about this team, and it depends who's all healthy there and when they're all healthy, but the hard part about this team is even though the Vikings seem to have a lot of weaknesses, they have seemed to work through those weaknesses. And with Kirk Cousins, you know, starting to, to seem to figure out what he needs to do to make that offense work, um, the Vikings are one of those teams that what I've noticed with them, because they're always right behind the Packers, pursuing the Packers, what I've noticed with the Vikings is they win the games that they need to win when they need to win them. And, you know, I'll look every once in a while and think, oh, here's a game that they'll probably lose and fall back in the standings. But they, they continue to press on. And, you know, when, when that offense is is healthy, they're one of the most dangerous offenses, you know, in, in the league. Um and that team was actually built to be a defensive team. So I think if everything is clicking for the Vikings, you have to watch out for them. The Rams, I'm not really worried about them because they've been so up and down, you know, this year, this season. And uh, they're kind of at an up point right now. And you would have to think that by the time the playoffs roll around, they'll probably be, be going back down again. So it, it's hard to say because when everything is clicking over there, that team is – is built very strong from top to bottom, but they seem to have something, you know, some kind of an inner chaos going on that doesn't that doesn't allow them to to fire on all cylinders like they should be at this point in the season. Now, going back to the the AFC, Peter. I mean, we people have buried the Patriots so many times over the years, especially in you know now that Brady's older, people think, okay, well, he's got to show eventually the signs of aging and he seemed to beat that just about every time every time you think that his career is over or the Patriots are susceptible they wind up proving you wrong the last six games Brady's only had a completion percentage of 54 percent which is really like if it's bad for him like I mean this is something that you really don't ever see someone like him ever do in his career I mean career passer of about 65%, and there's been a lot of criticism about, well, maybe his receivers and him aren't on the same page. He hasn't really had great receivers, but over his career, outside of the years he had Moss and, and Welker, really have had a lot of guys that weren't great individually, you know, especially without him. So do you think that this finally is the end for Brady, uh, and it's, it's not just uh, a temporary thing, but something like the, the Patriots now, if, especially the way they've played against uh, the Chiefs losing at home to the Chiefs, a game that they normally wouldn't lose, do you think these are, are real signs of decline or is it just, just another thing to tease everyone in the NFL and kind of suck them in and then, you know, we'll eventually see the Patriots back in the Super Bowl? <laughs> I, 
I know that you've been waiting for this moment. So <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, you know how I feel about Tom Brady. I, mm-hmm. I, I believe that uh, you know Tom Brady has been very lucky to be in a system where he has a coach that knew exactly how to build a team. You know, kind of like we're talking about the Ravens, except for Belichick has done it for decades now, and he's built a team that works very well for the players that he has in the system. We've seen, yes, you're right, we've seen Tom Brady fall a lot of times, and everybody gives him the credit for coming back, but the credit should go to Belichick. Belichick is the one that that finds the, the holes in the other team's scheme and puts his team in the position to win. Um, but even right now, as we're talking about the Patriots, you know, possibly falling apart, and you know that this could be the end. They're still ten and three. <laughs> you know? Right. This is, this, this is still a very good team. If they're falling apart, then that's bad news for the rest of the league because this is still <laughs> a very solid team. You know, um, I, I think it's going to be kind of a hard time to judge them because their next game is against the Bengals. And there's very little chance that they lose that game. If they do, then I think we can, you know. <laughs> Send off the fire down. alarm, yeah. <laughs> we can put a fork in them. But, uh, you know, then they go to the Bills, and that's that's a game that you can win or lose just because you're in the same division. And then uh, they have the Dolphins, which should be an easy game for them, but once again in the same division. But um, I, I don't think the Patriots are done yet. Uh, I think we're going to see a slow decline there, unless Brady just desi- decides to give it up. But... You know, that, that team has just been too good for too long. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they like you said, they, they find ways to win even when they're playing horrible, which is a sign of, of greatness in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, he's, he's without Gronk. He's without any really good weapons, and they're still 10-3. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you've you got to admire a team that can fight through all of that that, over all these years, with all the wear and tear that they have on them, and still, you know, be one of the best teams in in the division and in their conference and in the league. Now, you've, you you mentioned the Bills because that game that they have coming up in Week 16, which is a Saturday game, a Saturday triple header, header for the NFL. No one thought Buffalo was going to be as good as they've been. I think Josh Allen. I know I I wasn't sold on Josh Allen. I don't know if I still am. But the Bills have put themselves in position here and combined with a couple of losses, right, with the Patriots losing three out of their last five games. If they beat them in New England, they could set themselves up to finally wrestle away the division from Brady, which hasn't been done in a season he played in since the Jets did it back in 2002. So do you think that Buffalo is some uh, a team that is underrated that you got to have to watch out for, or, or are they really limited by what Josh Allen? I mean, we know their defense is great, but are they really limited by what Josh Allen can or can't do? Um, I, I would say from watching the Bills, I've always liked the Bills. I've, I've always been a, a fan of theirs in one way or another. I guess you could almost say they're my AFC team. Well, what I've noticed with them in the past is right Right when you think that they're at, at that point of breaking out, you know, they kind of fall apart as a team. Um, but this year what I've seen is, is they win all the games that they should win, but they don't beat the teams that are at the same level or better than them. And that, that kind of scares me for them because, you know, I mean, 
in, in order to make that next step, in order to be a playoff-type team, you have to be able to beat teams on your own level, and the Bills don't seem to be able to do that. So I don't think this is their year yet. I think they have a great future ahead of them. They have a quarterback who, once again, this is a guy that can bring different levels at you, different attacks at you, and can make that offense very interesting. So I think, yes, the Bills probably have a great future, but I don't think that future starts yet. So we're going Peter Wisen of Dynasty Sports. Peter, I know we kind of talked about this. Do you have your the best player at uh, every position, all, you're all 22, or at least a lot of the skill positions set? I do. And I, I actually picked my favorite players, not necessarily the okay. ones that I think were the best because I didn't know exactly where we were going with that. But, yeah, I do have all 22. So if Tom Brady, in your mind, is, <laughs> is overrated and not the best, who, who is the best in terms of quarterback in your mind? I think he's well, the same. Dan Marino has been doing what quarterbacks are doing now. Dan Marino was doing three decades ago. He was so far ahead of his time that he's actually judged his his career is judged by quarterbacks now. Um, there was nobody else back then to judge him again. And so back then he actually looked like he maybe wasn't the greatest quarterback because he was doing things that were so much different. But when you look back now, he fits in with all of these quarterbacks now. And his attack, his schemes, his players weren't even built to play in this style of an offense. Imagine if Dan Marino was here where receivers actually knew how to run these styles of offenses. They knew how to manipulate the defenses. The guy would be incredible. I, I don't think we would be talking about any other quarterback in the world right now if Dan Marino was in this day and age. Um, because three decades ago, he created the offenses that we finally caught up to in right around 2007. We started to do what Dan Marino had been doing for decades. So, yeah, there's a lot of other great quarterbacks. There's a lot of other great styles of playing quarterbacks. But I think uh, as far as the offenses that we've seen now, these full-out attacks, there's nobody better than Dan Marino. What about running backs? There's a, a lot of studs there, a lot of great running backs throughout the years and you know throughout the obviously the NFL history. What, what, what do you got there? I have Marshall Falk. I think either him or Walter Payton are, are the most complete running backs that we've ever seen. There's guys that run the ball well, and there's guys that catch the ball well, but these two guys did both extremely well. And uh, I would take Marshall Falk and Hall Kirby. Wide receivers? I mean, come on, let's keep, keep going. Wide receivers, offensive line, what do you got? Um, for wide receivers, I have Randy Moss and Kelvin Johnson, and I, I kind of structured it around this offense that would be run by Dan Marino and Marshall Falk. So I went with Randy Moss, Kelvin Johnson, Tony Gonzalez, Gronk, and then I built an offensive line that I thought would be great for protecting them. Orlando Pace, Dan Deardorff, Larry Allen, Will Shields, and Blake Stevenson. Wow. Pierce Deardorff, uh, was it Will, Will Shields? Larry Allen, Will Shields. And Dwight Stevenson. Wow. I mean, Dwight Stevenson, one of the greatest all-time centers uh, in NFL history. And Will Shields was a, a very uh, athletic offensive lineman, I'd say. And Larry Allen. I mean, Larry Allen, for a guy his size, I remember him one time catching a guy that intercepted the ball, a defensive back. <laughs> and, and he had, yeah. like, the guy had, had about 10 yards on him, and Allen was able to, get, to catch him. Um, so he, another great... Uh, athletic offensive lineman, kind of like what, what we see now. A lot of these offensive linemen that are coming out of college, these guys are huge, but they're athletic too. 
Uh, a lot of the, the Colts offensive line, how many of those guys are real big athletic guys? Um, yeah, I mean, you, just give us your thoughts about what made you pick the offensive lineman you did. I mean, obviously, these guys are good pass blockers, but, um, you know, with Falk and, and Peyton, kind of little two different running backs where, where Falk is able to be a much better pass receiver, even though Peyton was a little underrated as a pass receiver. Um, why, what made you look at the, the offensive lineman you did? Um, they were, they were just the guys that I found that, you know, as looking through it, that were great at pass blocking. A lot of them didn't give up, um, their, you know, as the offensive line that they were a part of, didn't give up a sack for years. I think it was Stevenson, their, their offensive line didn't give up a sack for six consecutive years, I believe it was, or some crazy, I, I can't remember exactly what the stat was, but, mm-hmm. um, it, it can't have been that, but it, it was just whatever the rating was, these guys were almost factors. And, uh, you know, that's the kind of thing you're looking for when you're building a team where you're going to go downfield with guys like Randy Moss, Kelvin Johnson, mm-hmm. you know, those type guys. And you mentioned Dan Dierdorf. I don't think people, enough people realize Dierdorf was part of a great offensive line for the St. Louis Cardinals in the 70s with Conrad Dobler, who, if you remember the Miller Light beer commercials in the 80s, Dobler was a known cheater, uh, according to a lot of a lot of people he played defense against. That absolutely hated playing against him because he would always take a cheap shot. Dierdorf was kind of like the opposite. He was the, the clean cut guy, but was a very good offensive lineman in his own right. And you know, people know him now as an announcer. But uh, it's great that you put him on and that he gets the recognition he deserves. That is a Hall of Famer, one of the best offensive linemen uh, to ever come. Uh, you know th- that we ever saw play his position. All right, so we have your offense. Um, give us your defense, starting with your safeties and, and cornerbacks. Who's your defensive backfield? Well, believe it or not, I actually had more fun putting together the defense. <laughs> um, it's something I've always thought about. I think if you're going to build a team in the NFL, you have to start with defense. Everybody goes right to quarterback. I'm not sure why, because if you can stop the other team's quarterback, you know, then then you don't really have to do much on the offensive side. Um, my favorite player in the NFL of all time is Troy Palomalu. I love watching the guy play. He he had such a mellow personality until he got on the field, and then he just turned into a demon. And the guy was incredibly smart, incredibly athletic. You know, athletically gifted, and uh, had had a drive, had a competitive attitude like nobody I've ever seen. So I would go with Troy Palomalu, Steve Atwater. I watched him punish the Packers too many times. Mm. Um, Deion Sanders and Darrell Revis. Interesting with Darrell Revis there. Um, what about what about linebackers? I think there's you know watching like the NFL 100, you know, revealing their all-time teams. Some of these positions, you, you see the talent and some of the guys that left out, and then you realize just how much mm-hmm. talent and skill are at some of these positions. How deep? What about linebackers? That's an interesting one where you can go all sorts of different ways there. Um, Ray Lewis, Mike Singletary. Junior Seau and Lawrence Taylor. I don't think you can go wrong with any of those guys. You know, Peter, I, I was just curious. Have you watched the NFL 100 all-time team shows as they reveal every Friday night? I haven't. No, okay. Yeah, I do, I'm just curious because like a lot of these names, and, and trust me, don't like especially you know being a younger guy myself. A lot of these names are a little bit more recent. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to hear like your perspective because a lot of these names you're giving, don't, don't get me wrong, are all studs and are all great guys. But just interesting to see how. You know, a little. You know, it's, it's a little bit different. A lot, not, a lot of these names, or excuse me, are not really on the same all 100 teams. So I like the different perspective, and I like the more recent, you know, additions because I think you're right. Sometimes we may favor even 
too early in the NFL to just kind of get those guys in. But it's interesting to see kind of your list, how it compares to that list. Because, again, like you mentioned, Troy Palmo not on the all-time mm-hmm. list for the NFL team, but on yours. And you can't go wrong. And a lot of these names you said you can't go wrong with because mm-hmm. there's just so many positions that are so deep. Uh, what about defensive line, at least finally for me? So when you go 3-4, I guess. <laughs> right, right, Peter? Yeah, I went with the 3-4. So okay. I had Aaron Donald in the middle, uh, Reggie White, and Michael Strahan. Wow. And now, is that Strahan as a guest host? Does he get to host a game as well? <laughs> as, 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 as <laughs> well, well, when I built this team, what I, what I was looking at is this. There's a lot of times where we look back at these older players, and they have this mystique in our mind because of the, the era that they played in. But when, when you're talking about building a, an all-time team, you can't just build it to win in one era. You have to build a team that would last throughout generations. And for me, these are guys that, that play the type of football that would last forever, not just, you know, something from, from back in, you know, 30, 40 years ago or not just something for today. But this team that I put together, I put it together with the mindset that they would win in any generation. You could put these guys on the field at any time, and, and they would win. I mean, if you got Strahan and Reggie White coming at you from the outside and right. you got Aaron Donald in the middle, you're not going to really have a lot of time to do anything. This is a team built to put pressure on, as, as is the offense. So um, I didn't build it the way that the NFL did, I'm sure. Um, it's not something I really followed with that, but I built a team, like I said in the beginning, I built a team that – that I would want to put on the field on a regular basis. Well, I think it's really interesting. You have two wide receivers that are both tall and athletic and can go up and get it. You know, Calvin Johnson was an underrated guy who kind of retired with still a lot of years left uh, le- left to play. And then you have Moss, which, you know, Moss was first great with the Vikings and, and Culpepper and, uh, you know, and Brad Johnson and then just reached a whole new level. I think he still has a record for most rece- receiving touchdowns in a single season. Uh, right. And and a guy that was a freak. And they call him a freak. He was he was so dynamic in what he could do. And then you have two tight ends, which are both physical tight ends, but they can also go up and and, and catch the ball. They can run over people. Gronk and Tony Gonzalez. You know, obviously Falk and Peyton don't need any uh, explanation. Then you have Marino, who Marino. I don't think there's there's ever been a better quarterback as far as just being able to sit back there and pick apart defenses. I mean, if you gave Marino time, he was going to kill you. And, and he did that going against, you know, a very physical. When he played, it was a very physical game back then. You know, the 80s, people don't remember how physical the NFL was or how good it was in the 80s. You know, you had Joe Gibbs in the Redskins teams. You had Parcells in the Giants. You had a Bill Walsh in the 49ers. You know, then you had even, you know, Buffalo kind of coming uh, – into their own in the late 80s, you know, Marv Levy and you know, Cornelius Bennett and Andre Reid and Thurman Thomas and you know, Jim Kelly. Uh, then you had uh, the Browns and Bernie Kosar and, and you know, Ernest Biner, Kevin Mack. You had Broncos with Elway and, and their, their orange crush defense, which wasn't very big but could do a lot of different things. Guys like, guys like Carl Mecklenburg you know, and Atwater uh, later, on in his, uh, you know, later on in the 80s. Yeah, then you still had the Raiders, you know, won two Super Bowls early in the 80s. Um, so that, there was a, a, a lot of – the 80s was a great time uh, for, for the NFL, and, and that was where Marino was born in. And like you said, he did so many things that, you know, 
the year he threw 48 touchdown passes, I believe the record was that he broke it. But I think he broke uh, Johnny Unitas' record or, or somebody that it had only been like a handful of guys to ever throw 40 touchdowns in a year. And he just blew away their record. Um, and he threw for 5,000 yards, which would, you know, had never been done. You know, uh, Namath was the first guy to throw 4,000 yards. And, and Marino it was so far ahead of everybody. It, a guy didn't do it again, I believe, until maybe Breeze in, in the early 2000s. So it, just a lot, or, 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 or Kurt, Kurt Warner. So a, a lot of different things that Marino was able to do that was unique. And people don't remember Marino that didn't see him like, like we did as being a guy that was, you know, as good or, or, or as revolutionary as he was. So I'm glad that you, uh, you, you put him on there. Now, as far as, like, other guys that you think are underrated, okay, is there anybody on the, that you didn't put on a team that you look at and you say, man, you know, I really wanted to put him on, but there's just not enough positions? Um, I, I think the place that I did that the most was cornerback because, to me, if uh, – if you're going to build a, a defense, you want to stop the pass because if you can make a team one-dimensional to have to run, then, you know, the guys that you already have out there on the field, you should be able to stop. So, you know, there were a lot of cornerbacks out there that I like, like Richard Sherman. Uh, I know <laughs> I know that there's people, you know, that don't think he's that great, but I remember there were times where the guy seems like, you know, he's like nobody would even look his way. No quarterbacks would want to look his way. So, yeah, there were, you know, there were guys like that. Um, I suppose at every position, you know, Barry Sanders is a guy. He, he to me, was more one-dimensional than, than the running backs that we have now. Yes, he was explosive, so one-dimensional seems like a weird word to give him. But, you know, it, I saw him get stopped a lot of times. But I, I like him, and I'd like to have a guy like that on my team. But, you know, just guys like that here and there. But, I put a lot of thought into it because this is the kind of team that that I would build if I were to build one. The reason I picked a guy like Kelvin Johnson is watching him in his career. You know, he, he like you said, he didn't play a long career. So a lot of people, you know, looking at his stats, it doesn't seem to add up necessarily to everyone else. But even on a Lions team, it seemed so odd. That offense was so odd all the time. If you didn't triple team Kelvin Johnson, he would walk all over you. And even when you did triple team him, he would go up and come down with the ball more often than not. This right. is a guy that drew so much attention. And, you know, I just figured if you if you had him with Randy Moss lined up on the other side, that was another guy that there was almost no way to stop him. I remember being so frustrated <laughs> watching games with him. It's a Packers, yeah. Because there was almost no way to stop this tall, super athletic, you know, a guy that was just as fast or faster than everybody else on the field. So, you know, that's that's the kind of explosive offense that I guess I went with at this time. Right. I mean, he had the nickname Megatron for a reason, right? Mm -hmm. It just was impossible to uh, to stop, and he just really was like a, a made of machine almost, it felt like. Uh, Peter was on Dynasty Sports. Before we wrap up here, Peter, we kept you long enough, so thanks so much for your patience. Well, you know, you did used to work with Marcus Coos. What was that like? Any any good funny memories or any, any you know, any good stories we can we could share quickly before we uh, let you go? Um, talking with Mark was great. The guy, the guy is so knowledgeable, and uh, you know almost anything that I ever mentioned to him. I noticed him doing it today too. I <laughs> I mention a play or, or mention something that happened, and he can tell you the whole history surrounding everything about. It. I love I love co-hosting with him mainly just to 
to hear the knowledge and to grow. I love sports. I love the NFL in particular. And, uh, you know, just to grow from that knowledge and listen to him talk, the guy knows so much about the game. Um, you know, it, it was a great experience. I mean, we did it for, you know, kind of a limited amount of time, but uh, every every time was great. And, and uh, I enjoyed when he would let me just, you know, bring up a topic and then he would flow with it. Um, when we when he was talking earlier about Dan Marino, he brought up Cornelius Bennett, who was one of my favorite players to watch, mm-hmm. and just little things like that. That comes out to see this, this guy. guy really knows what he's talking about. So, Mark, I appreciate you bringing me on, Ryan. It was nice to meet you, man. Nice meeting you too, Peter. Thanks so much for, for giving us a few minutes here. Yeah, thanks, Peter. And, uh, you know, for, for those of you um, who want to find Peter, you can find him at uh, Dynasty Sports. He does um, – he just started to do some – uh, post on Facebook as far as uh, giving his opinion about things. Uh, hopefully we can get him here and, and uh, you can join us. But uh, Peter, it's always great to talk with you and, uh, you know, stay safe and uh, we'll, you know, keep in touch and we'll, we'll talk to you soon, okay? All right. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate yep. you. Yep. You too. Thanks so much, Peter. Again, really appreciate the time. Peter Wiseman of Dynasty Sports. Just, just, it's funny hearing you two go to MMA Lane and just talk about all the, the players and the times you used to, uh, you know, in turn, you know, just watching these guys because, like, you know, like Peter said, like, we'll just be talking on topic. All of a sudden, next thing you know, we're down a rabbit hole of, like, a guy <laughs> you saw play with Dan Marino and you sit on your couch in 1985. It's just Mm-mm. it's a photo, uh, photographic memory that it really is funny. It has to hear you, too. Uh, you know what was great when we interviewed Jerry Kramer? Like, for those of you who don't know, Jerry Kramer was a, a Hall of Fame offensive lineman. or I, I think he's an Hall of Fame. He oh, should yeah. be. Yeah, it, yeah, he yeah. finally got in after um, it felt like. Yeah. Forever, I think I, recently too. Within yeah, the last two or three years. When we when we interviewed him, he was not yet. And uh, but I'm a, I'm a historian, so I'm asking him games about you know he played in those the first two Super Bowls, and he was uh, you know Lombardi when Lombardi first came in, the Packers were awful, and he was on that team, and he played with Bart Starr and all these guys. So he would he, he loved Lombardi, uh, but of course he hated him at first, and. Um, there was a, a rivalry he had with a, a defensive player called Alex Karras, who wound up uh, being a TV star. Actually, he wound up hmm. being at a TV show called Webster. Uh, but he was a guy, Alex Karras was a guy who played for the Lions. He was a defensive, uh, defensive player, defensive lineman, uh, very good in his own right. And um, they were at a, a football, because uh, Kramer was one of the first guys to write a book. It's called In- Instant Replay. And it was about one of the years that he won a Super Bowl with the, with the Packers. And, He's also the one that put that great block that won the Ice Bowl to beat the Cowboys. He was the one that provided the room for Bart Starr to, to kind of sneak across the goal line. Mm-hmm. And so after he wrote the book, it, they were at, in the offseason and they were at an awards banquet. And so Alex Karras is up there and he's talking and he says, you know, uh, you don't have to worry about uh, Jerry Kramer or people telling you how great Jerry Kramer is because, you know, if you want to find out how good he is, just ask him. He'll tell you. <laughs> and so, you know, or, or how good his book is, you know, he'll tell right. you. So when Kramer got up to speak, he goes, you know, Alex, that's great that you would say that. And, you know, it's, it's amazing. You know, and, and I hope that there's a lot of people that, that wind up reading my book. Who read it to you? <laughs> you know, kind of like, you don't know how to read. Like, right. like I'm, I'm glad that, you know, a lot of people, who, who, who read the book to you? And, and it was, you know, kind of like a, a shot back <laughs> at him. Um, and so he told us that story. I asked him about that story. I asked him about the games. You know, people who don't remember, the Cowboys back then lost to the Packers, not only in the Ice Bowl, which was a great game, but the year before they lost to them 
uh, in Dallas where, where Green Bay stopped them, uh, they had first and goal at the three. And if, they, if the Cowboys would have went in a way, pushed that game into overtime. And the Cowboys could have very well been in the first two Super Bowls. And instead of the Vince Lombardi trophy, it could have been the Tom Landry trophy. Um, so alter history. This is this is what we're yeah. talking about. Right? Also, next you know when our rabbit hole of, of Super Bowl one and two and how it could have been the Cowboys and it's just funny to hear and you the guys, Packers. Yeah, and all it, these facts going back, you know, way it, back. It was great to talk to him about that uh, because, like he, I doubt there's many people who would ask him about that. People who even knew about that, you know, who knew how good Don Meredith was. Don Meredith was one of the first guys on uh, on Monday Night Football with Howard Cosell and uh, you know Keith Jackson started their first year and then uh, Frank Gifford came in. So it, it was really great. That, I remember that, that, to me, was something that just to be sit there. and I love interviewing people, but to mm-hmm. be able to interview someone like Jerry Kramer, that, to me, was an honor. Must have been and, so uh, cool. It really was. I, I don't even remember how we got the gas. I didn't, I didn't get it. I had nothing to do with it. That was all Peter. But, hey, so. all that matters is you got him. You got to talk to him. Like I said, you talked to an eventual Hall of Fame uh, line, which mm-hmm. was just so cool. And like you said, just a great opportunity. Um, so yeah, it was, it was great to have Peter on. I hope we can have him on again because, like you said, just mm-hmm. you two with the historian minds, it's just awesome to hear, especially for someone you know. Again, I I miss so much of the NFL, right? So it's just nice to hear, right. like, all, like I, even with the you know everything we just talked about, mm-hmm. it's so nice to hear. You know, you two just going back and forth on all the great players. And to your point too, like you know, we talked with the NFL 100 team. It's just so funny because so much of Peter's guys aren't on that team, right? But there's really not many guys he listed out arguing and say, hey, uh, they don't yeah. deserve it. It's just hard to beat that team. Right. You know? Like it's just it's so it's so crazy how much talent there are. And like you said, some positions are just and pa- like, stacked. Paul so, wasn't on the safety list I on know. the NFL team. So who like, would who would you like while we're on this topic, you know, let's let, let's kind of brainstorm about guys you would choose or guys that really were underrated kind of at their position. So as far as quarterbacks, uh, we know the great ones. Like who who is a quarterback you saw that wouldn't be considered a Hall of Famer or, or a, 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 a can't-miss guy, but who is one of the quarterbacks you, you see that you appreciated watching in your lifetime as an NFL fan? That wouldn't be a Hall of Famer? Yeah, that, that was like, man, this guy's really good, but he's probably not going to be like, – he doesn't compete with a Brady or a Drew Brees. Um, that's, I have to think because, to be honest, like – We can gro- go back to like, Todd, up, Todd like, Blackledge, like you know, an old, an old you know, Penn State guy. Chuck Chuck Fusina. <laughs> so I'm trying to, because like obviously growing up now, a lot of my memories were after 2000. So that's kind of a different era with quarterbacks. So now like growing up a Colts fan, I watched a lot of Peyton Manning. So now it's. Uh, like where would you put head. Andrew Luck? Ooh, that's. Yeah, I guess you're right. Like he's not gonna be a Hall of Fame quarterback, but he had the talent to be a Hall of Fame quarterback. His career and the injuries derailed that. I would say that's a good point. He's out there. I'm not trying to sound like a homer. He's up there. I'm trying to like think. Or like of Alex Smith. I like Alex Smith. He's okay. I mean, he's he's decent. Like I don't think he's anywhere near the hall. He's obviously nowhere near the hall of fame. Um, guy, like yeah, I'll, I'll, Alex was okay. I mean, outside of two or three years, like it was be really. You know, I would take. I mean, it's going to be. You know, I mean, you think you take this different ways, but as a Colin Kaepernick guy, that when he burst mm-hmm. on the team of the 49ers, was so exciting and interesting right. to watch because he was almost like a unicorn in of himself because he was bigger than Michael Vick. He had a right. strong arm. So he was it's sort fast. of doing Lamar Jackson-esque things. Mm-hmm. Right, but before Lamar Jackson because that was kind of a 49ers team that was sort of built under Jim Harbaugh the same way the Ravens are built now, right? Mm-hmm. Power run game. Yep. They had some Frank big Gore. receivers, yep. but right, they weren't like, they didn't spread Michael out. Crabtree, yep. Right, yep. like they were kind of built sort of like the Ravens are now, but before that time, and like you said, 
he just ran like a gazelle. That was kind of the, did, the animal yeah. that you know, he, he had those long legs. He would gather. Remember, he had such a unique throwing motion to it. Like he would fling it like those guys in the electronic football games. Like right. Yeah. You know? And I know this will hurt Pete if you're still listening. I would hurt him. But I remember like in a playoff game when the Packers yep. went to Candlestick Park yeah, and just did, like yep. I think he ran for 200 yards. Yeah. Mistake. It's just like just galloping all over the field. Just one of those guys where in that two or three year run when they went to the Super Bowl yep. and I think lost in the NFC title game. They yeah. lost to the uh, well. They lost to the year they lost to the Giants. That was Alex Smith. Okay. Um, and then they wound up beating the Falcons right. when they were down big. Yep. Uh, and then the the year after was that with the Seahawks. Remember? Right. Remember with the you know? Yeah. Yes. Sherman the, uh, and Sherman and screaming. Yes. Yeah. But they they were in position to win right. that game. Yeah. So that's so you know, they had a nice like, two or three year run mm-hmm. right there with Colin Kaepernick, where it was just like they were such a dynamic offense, um, and sort of stopped. So I'd say that's probably a guy again. Politics aside, kneeling aside, that was just one of those guys where when he was there, it was just so much fun to watch because he was something we never seen before. What about you? Mm, yeah, I look. I, I think Kaepernick was uh, just there was a reason why. I mean, Alex Smith was good. Serviceable, after right? after Harbaugh got there, Smith had a whole new career. Okay, and even at that 2011 season, they came out of nowhere. They wound up winning the division. They beat a very good Saints team in the divisional round in a game where Smith had to twice in the last three minutes come down and, and lead scoring drive. One, one he actually ran for, and the other he wound up uh, hitting, I believe, Vernon Davis. Yeah, um, Vernon Davis was like crying on the sideline, yeah. I believe, against yeah. the Saints in that playoff game. Yep, it was uh, like it was. Kind of like the what the catch three they called it because you had you know Montana to Clark, then you had Young to Terrell Owens, and then you had you know um, Smith to Vernon Davis. Vernon Davis, and but there were a couple plays on that where Vernon Davis was just he, he was really good too. He was a guy that was underrated. Maybe I would put him in that category. Um, but as far as overall guys, like uh, as far as quarterbacks that have played recently. Um, it's, t- it's, it's tough, tough, right? Like it's cause tough. Because like, the talent is so much higher and so much better than it was. So now, like, not many guys stand out because, like, we have so much talent, so much young talent. Right. Right? Look now, like, you have Patrick Mahomes, Lamar Jackson, mm-hmm. Sean Watson. Those guys right. are just in their third years now. Like, and th- and right. they are already close to the top. So it's like, to your point, like, the talent and the level has gone up so much, and there's so much competition for quarterback. It's so important that now, to your point, right, there's not many guys that either stick out or – are super really good, but just not on that same level. Be- I mean, maybe Kirk Cousins in, in terms of putting up chunk numbers, but I mean, it's, it's tough to say, like, a guy was either, you know, before his time or kind of was doing things before, you know, they are now because just the, throw- well, the ball is being thrown so much, it's, it's a different game. I would say a guy that I have a lot of respect for that has had an underrated career, Matthew Stafford. Yeah, that's um, a good one. That's a really good one. Yeah, rash, he's thrown for 5,000 yards. Um, but not only did he, is he throwing for 5,000 yards, but there were a couple seasons where he threw, uh, if I can bring up his stats here. Right, especially of, with uh, Matthew Stafford, too. I mean, obviously he had Calvin Johnson, one of the best receivers right. of all time. Don't get me wrong. But outside of that, he's really like he's had no second or third receiver that's been consistent. Mm-hmm. And since Calvin Johnson left, he's still throwing 5,000 yards. And he has no, like, no big-time receivers. He's doing it with not a great cast around him. Not so much of the team is – I think they've made one playoff appearance. And yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, the team has stunk. 
for the better part of his entire career. Never really a solid running game. The offensive line has been banged up. The defense has been leaky. So think to your point, right, he's been so successful and put a lot of it on his shoulders despite not having a great cast around him. So he's it's been impressive. That's a great call, Mark. He's 0-3 in his career in the playoffs. Uh, My bad. But one of those games was against the Saints that yep. year because the next week the Saints went out and lost to the, the Niners. Then in 2014, I believe they played the Cowboys. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, in Dallas. And then I don't know who they played in 2015. Uh, uh, t- 2016. Uh, I don't know. But you're, uh, to your the Seahawks. Point, the Seahawks. To okay. your point, though, like you said, yeah. right, like, he's, that's, a, uh, that's a great point because that's like, there's not many underrated guys that throw for a lot of yards because right. those guys usually, for the most part, win games, and we see them week mm-hmm. in, week out, making the playoffs. To your point, right, Matthew Stafford might be one of the most underrated quarterbacks in this mm-hmm. era because he puts up huge numbers, but the team stinks. They can't really get to the playoffs that often. They're never even near. That's mm-hmm. only two. If he was even near playoff contention, he would get so much more attention than he would because injuries, because the team, like you said, he's, he's largely gone under the radar and underappreciated. He had, you know, he had pit, threw for 5,000 yards in 2011. In his third year in the league, he was only 23 years old. Then the next year at 24, they go 4-12, and 12 and he throws 4-9-6-7. So he's 33 yards short of 5,000. Okay? And he hasn't reached that. He hasn't come close since then, but his best year overall, you could probably say, with the team, 2014, they were 11 and five when they lost to Dallas in a game that was, they had a couple calls go against them, uh, where he had his highest completion percentage or uh, completion percentage was, you know, 67 percent, 32 touchdowns, 13 interceptions. His problem is he's thrown a lot of picks. Right. Every year he's had over 10 picks, and uh, with the exception of this year, which it looked like he was kind of. Figuring it out as far as uh, efficiency, had, you know, a completion percentage of under just under 65. He had 19 touchdowns, five interceptions. The lines were in every game that he was playing, and then yep. uh, you know his injury really—you saw how much the Lions depend on him. And he was a guy that a couple years ago, I said, you know, if a team really wants to uh, take advantage of a quarterback that's underrated and not appreciated, go get him. Right. And but the Lions knew that you know this is. a I wouldn't say a generational player because obviously those guys win and he hasn't won. But just the fact that he's been out there and he's taken a beating, he's kind of had to create things himself because the Lions haven't always provided him with, you know, their defense has never been a great defense. You know, he had Calvin Johnson and, um, you know, obviously the running backs he had were, you know, never really had a, a great running back. The Detroit's running game has always kind of been something, you know, since Barry Sanders left that has not been consistent. So he's never had really a dynamic amount of weapons, but he's been pretty good for what he's been given. And he's a guy that has, you know, 20-something fourth-quarter comebacks, which is, you know, up there as far as right. guys since 2000. Since he came into the league, he's in the top five. Right, and I mean, which is good in a bad stack because it's nice that you can bring your team back. At the same time, you have to also be in positions when you're losing. 34 game-winning drives, 28 to, comebacks. So That's not bad. No, it's, it's pretty good, but like you said, just the, the unfortunate for him, the team around him. He'd be interesting, too, because he still has three years left after this year. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the injuries have a, you know, taken a toll. but He's only 32, right. 31 now. He'll be 32. And sometimes quarterbacks take that, that long to really hit their stride. I mean, you what would you want to do if you were him? I mean, he's kind of rode it out in Detroit. I mean, it, it's they're three night like they they're going nowhere. They're yeah. probably firing Matt Patricia, and like you said, they they were competitive this year when he was in, right? And they lost most of those games. And since he's been out, it's just been a nightmare. He said they they're going to finish worse than they did last year. Matt Patricia was on the high seat last year, 
if I was him, I don't know if I, you know, maybe quietly try to ask for a trade, or I wonder if the Lions would just look into it anyway. Because, um, like I said, still three years off, still getting a decent amount of money. And not to mention, too, there'll be a lot of teams out there. Look at the Chargers. Look at the Titans. There are a, a bunch of teams that are maybe a quarterback away from taking that next step to win and contend, even the Bears. Like, those are three teams right there that have a solid defense, a decent offense, and they're just maybe a quarterback away from taking to the next level. I would be interested to see how desperate they are if they were to give up a first-round pick or how much Matthew Stafford could get back. Because for the Lions, you know, this point, you start accumulating picks. If you can get first round, maybe two or three picks for Matthew Stafford, I think, you know, mm-hmm. you should try yeah. to do it. So he's an interesting guy. Like you said, we'll see once the offseason comes. Would that be a move? Because like you said, that's a huge upgrade, most fully for his career, underrated, underappreciated. Could mm-hmm. you imagine him either in, I, I understand with the stadium, but in Los Angeles with the Chargers now kind of taking that team who has a defense that is set, ready right. to win. Keenan Allen, Goodbye, Rivers, Hunter Henry, yeah. Marvin Gordon, if you want to re-sign him, or Austin. Like, they have a decent team ready to win mm-hmm. outside of Phillip Rivers. Or you even, from him. even a team like the Raiders, if, if Gruden said he's had enough right. with Derek Carr. Um, yeah, that's a good one, too. The um, Raiders, the Bears, know, the Titans. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Titans have found kind of like the Tannehill. Well, the you know, Jameis Winston, you, you know, I mean, he throws a lot of dumb things. You're going to re-sign him? Uh, well, I, I don't this know. Year. Yeah, I, I don't know if you're going to save much. Like, he, either way, Stafford, Winston, you're going to be paying out. Yeah, so I'd rather I, – I t- Stafford I, turns I, the ball over last. Jameis yeah, Winston. I, but, but Stafford still throws it. But you don't know how he would do with the team that was maybe a little better. And look at better. That, throwing a Chris Godwin and Mike Evans. There's a lot better right. than throwing a Kenny Galladay. Right. And, um, let's see who else. Maybe nah, not the Redskins. Or maybe, you know, not the Giants because they got uh, Daniel Jones. You know, not, not the Cardinals. Not, obviously not the Rams. Not the 49ers. No, but not I, the Saints. I, I not the Bears. Not the Panthers. Yeah, the Bears would be good. The Panthers is another team that if you want to make a trade for Maybe the Steelers, owner. too. You know, Roethlisberger's I mean, last. You still signed that big extension. You'll see if he comes back healthy. But you, to your point, I mean, maybe in the Broncos, if they don't like Drew Locke. I mean, Drew Locke's been playing well. But, yeah, but there's, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can go. And, you know, again, there's the need will be there, right? The demand will be, If Matthew Stafford is available, the demand will absolutely be there for teams. There's enough teams, like we said, with enough pieces around them mm-hmm. that are just a quarterback away from legitimately contending. Well, you you got a team like the Broncos who have, I believe, three third-round picks, okay, Maybe they could put, like, I think he would be a great fit in Denver. It's not the biggest as far as media. Uh, he's not going to have that much pressure on him. I mean, Elway was the guy they were always really comparing him to. But, you know, it's not like you're going into a place that has not never won and are just so desperate for, for winning. Uh, you know, a, a, I think Pittsburgh would be a great place for him. I think he'd be a great fit there. Um, I still, I mean, I don't know why. I still don't know if the Steelers like are ready to move. They just gave Big Ben that extension yeah, last he, offseason. He's the same age as Eli. You figure Eli's career is over. Uh, Rivers. He's you been more durable. He has been the most durable. Of the three. I mean, no one's getting. Who up. Eli? No. Well, Eli has been. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. But Big Ben has been. But he most productive still for sure. But he he's. Other I think they, they, they've they've played pretty well. I mean, look, they're they're, they're obviously better with him. I mean, guys won two Super Bowls. He's going to be a Hall of Famer. Uh, but he's he's at the. The downside of his career, like I, I think, if they could get a guy like Stafford to bring him in and kind of take take over for him, because he's what he's what thirty eight. So how many more years does he have? Left I just don't see the Steelers personally moving on, especially after that. All that money just gave him. How many? How many? contract? I mean, it was a, I mean, a decent extension, decent amount of money, and you, you just did it this this past off season. 
But how many so, more? How many more years you figure? There's a two-year deal, two-year extension, thirty-seven point five million signing bonus, thirty million guaranteed. So you have that was going into this year. This year is washed up. Yes. So he has one more. He has two more years left under contract. So I, again, I don't see them leaving and kind of, especially if they can't. You're not going to cut Big Ben. No. And eat that money, well, and then on top of that, trade a decent amount. You already don't have a first-round pick because you get it from Mika Fitzpatrick. So think about right. that too. Like right. draft capital. You got to also think about from the, the Lions' point of view. You're not just going to give him away. Right. For like a fifth-round pick. Well, I'm, I'm just saying where where I think he would fit to be a good fit. Like I, obviously there there are extenuating circumstances where it wouldn't work out. But if, if you're looking at teams that I think he would really be uh, someone that where he could go and win, Pittsburgh I think would be a great place for him. Um, Look, I, I think he would be, you know, if, if Josh Allen, the inconsistency there, I think he'd be great wow. with, with Buffalo. Already pulling the, but, pulling the court But, but that, that, that's not going to happen, obviously. They believe in Josh Allen, and he hasn't really done anything to, to warrant taking that away from him. I mean, he's, he's had some big moments this year, Josh Allen. Definitely more than I expected. Right. Because I looked at his completion percentage, I said, this guy's not going to be much of an NFL quarterback. But the Bills have been kind of there all season laying in the weeds and, and now they'll, they'll find themselves in position uh they have a huge game this weekend against the Steelers mm-hmm. if they beat the Steelers they'll I think they'll, they'll clinch a playoff spot and then they still have a shot at winning the AFC East which nobody would have given them a shot. nope I thought that they would be lucky to win four or five games at the beginning of the year yeah I did not see the Bills coming on with you but what Sean McDermott has built especially that defense yeah. has been so stout so good a very underrated coach right oh yeah oh absolutely yeah Absolute catalyst um, for that Bills team. I think you, you saw it with, with McDermott. I remember the first game against the Jets, he did a couple things as a coach where I'm like, wow, that was, that was really underrated what he did. Like whether it's calling timeouts at specific times or like he seems to understand the game really well. Um, and he understands his players pretty good. And this was a guy that nobody really – it wasn't like he was a guru that you know, was supposed to be the next great coach, kind of just under the radar kind of stuff. But he's got to be up there – as far as, you know, guys that were coach of the year, like I know they're probably not going to give it to him, right. but he's definitely up there as far as I'm oh, concerned. Oh, absolutely. Like you said, and, and what they're doing too in Buffalo, which is so important, they're building a culture, right? That's mm-hmm. what Sean McDermott has built. Even since he's been there, they've struggled a little bit, but he is building a culture and identity, and that team is buying it right now. You see, yeah. you see they're building around the defense, like you said, and they are being led from the front. Credit to Sean McDermott. Like you said, one of the most underrated coaches in in the NFL, um, and Buffalo is building something special. Even if you know they make the playoffs year first round exit, they are still building something very special. And you said if Josh Allen could kind of develop and just be not the reason why they lose games, and then eventually be the reason why they win games. Because right now that defense is so good, they'll be tough, and they could take the torch from the Patriots if this dynasty ends in the next few years. Which who knows? I mean, who knows what the Patriots can yeah. do? But if they're right now, they are the team that is primed to take the Patriots dynasty and end it. Right now, the Bills – I mean, right now, the Dolphins and the Jets right now, we know they're sputtering their wheels. The Bills are building the right thing right now in order to kind of overtake the Patriots at some point. And like you said, you go into Foxborough and win, you have the division. It'll be interesting. So, Although the Dolphins have really put themselves in good position. They have a lot of picks. No, they, they do. And like I said, but they're still a few years away, and they still have to build that. They're, building a, they're trying to build what the Bills did. They're trying to build a culture – get guys in that they want to succeed and could buy into that culture and mm-hmm. build it from there, which is the right way to do it. It takes time. It absolutely takes time, but that's how you build a sustainable long-term winner. The Bills did it, and that should be the identity of a lot of the teams going forward because that's how you truly build a sustained winner. So we'll see again. Buffalo's been a great story this year. They do have a big game in Pittsburgh, which we'll get to. We have our Week 15 picks 
um, to get to as well. And we come back a little MLB hot stove, right? Winter meetings in San Diego this week just came to an end. A ton of big signings. The Yankees signed Garrett Cole. We'll get to that. The Mets signed two pitchers to try to deepen their rotation. Waka, 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 right? And should we be concerned about all the young players on the trading block in the MLB? It is the Morning Boys. Ryan Hickey, Mark Everett, Kelly with you on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You're, you're, you're listening to the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You're listening to the Morning Boys on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It is the Morning Boys, and we are back on this Friday morning. We apologize; we had a little uh, technical difficulties with there with our computer. The stream did crash, um, so we just re-put it up. So if you're on Facebook, if you're on Twitter, Periscope, hopefully you can rewatch the new um, new stream that is live. We are back here for the next 45 minutes or so till it's the top of the hour and the haystack comes up next. Mark, a lot to get to so far. Um, obviously, it's college football. We do want to get to the hot stove quick as the Yankees do end up signing Garrett Cole to a massive deal. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> it's funny that going into this offseason, last year there were all these big free agents that, you know, the Manny Machados, the Bryce Harpers, who took forever for them to sign their deals. What were they worth? There was almost like a collusion going on with the owners. Where actually there was a case in the 80s where the Players Association brought the owners to court and actually won, and they proved collusion. I believe, like a, a big free agent that year was Andre Dawson, uh, coming from the Expos, going to the the, the Cubs and signing for way uh, less than what it was anticipated that he would sign for. Because that there there has been times when owners have tried to cut player salaries and not sign guys that were trying to, you know, set themselves up for the rest of their lives. It's, it's amazing how contracts in MLB have taken off. You know, you look at where they were, in, you know, in the 60s and 70s compared to where they are now. You have a 300-and-something million-dollar contract for Garrett Cole. But I think the Yankees, you saw what the Yankees' weakness was, what, where they lacked as far as being c- compared to the Astros. They didn't have that lights-out guy. Like a Ver- even though Verlander struggled most of the postseason, the Astros made it to the World Series and they were able to, uh, you know, have a three to two lead and almost you know and, and lose all four games at home. So Verlander was was good but not great. Cole was gr- great at times, uh, but in the World Series he wasn't able to win. You know, in game in game two, and then um, you know it just you expected more out of the Astros rotation because they were set with that kind of one-two lights-out guys. So it's not like that's a definite that you're going to win even when you have those many guys. You know, I believe like Detroit one year had, what, Serzer and 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 um, Verlander. Yep. And uh, who was the third guy that they had? Anibal yeah. Sanchez? Yeah, or, I think it was Anibal Sanchez because I remember those three were all pitching in the World Series at one point or another, and they all were on the Tiger staff. That one year, like you said, so it uh, it is funny. So, yeah, so the Yankees definitely get a guy like that, um, but the Yankees kind of made a a point to see exactly what they could do with the changing baseball scope of is it better to now, especially in specific games, just go with relievers. And I never got that because relievers are guys that are not good enough to be starters. Most of them, at least, guys middle relievers that they were going to fill those innings with. 
were guys that you wouldn't throw normally? I mean, if you're not, if you're not going to start them, what, you know, they, they were basically on the team to kind of fill up roles and, um, you know, maybe, you know, put a bridge between them and, and a closer. So, you know, they are in the game at really important times. It's almost like you have the starter go, obviously, the first couple innings, first five, six innings. So those are obviously important because you're throwing a guy who is, you're saying is good enough to start a, a Major League Baseball game. He's better than these other guys that you have in the bullpen. But yet the, yet the bullpen guys would get probably the most important part of the game. So I, I, that's still something I'm trying to figure out how best to do that. If I was a manager, what would I, when would I want my best pitchers out there? And how, how that would work. So you saw it that the Yankees tried to do it with, with bullpen guys over starters. They had guys that were good enough to be starters and, you know, would win games because the Yankees were so good. But they didn't have a, a Cole. They didn't have a Verlander. They didn't have a, a Clayton Kershaw, even though he's kind of struggled in the postseason. Right, they, they didn't have that go-to never Strasburg, Serzer, right. ace that the they Grom. knew we're going to put out here. He'll be better than whoever the other team has, and he'll just shut the other team down. They did mm-hmm. not have that in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were so, and, and they, they, all the injuries the Yankees had. You were, like, to me, the Yankees were such an enigma this year because all the guys you expected to have big years didn't. And these guys are going to be back next year. What if they have big years? Like the Yankees go 100 games. Like imagine what they're going to do. So now that they have a, a guy like Cole to lead that rotation, you remember what happened that one year that they really had a free agent frenzy where they, they signed Teixeira, they signed C.C. Zabathia, they signed... A.J. Burnett, uh, and then they wind up winning the World Series in 2009. You look at the AL East and you think, well, uh, there's no one really that can, that can match up with the, with the Yankees. Oh, here, the, the Tigers in 2014 had Scherzer, Verlander, and David Price. David Price, ah, that was Top three. And then they still had Sanchez, um, Rick Porcello. was Crazy. The message is signed. So, yeah, and that was a team that didn't even win a series. So yeah. uh, you, it's not always the answer. Having uh, great starters, you do need to have guys to get out in the late innings. But you hear about this all the time. Don't give relievers big-time contracts because they're so inconsistent. There, there's a, a lot of talk about Hader um, from, from, from Milwaukee yep. um, being on a, cho- on, on a trade block. You know, it, it, and when you saw Diaz last year for the Mariners, how lights out he was in 2018 coming to the Mets and being a disaster this year – you don't want to overuse a guy. I mean, even young guys like that, Hader's thrown a lot of innings these last couple of years. You saw uh, Miller. Like, he was, he was pretty much the, one of the best pitchers in baseball those couple of years with, yep. the, with the Indians, you know, and then you know, he's kind of disappeared. So how would you, how would you do it? Because I, I, I know what I would do as far as middle relievers. How would you do it as far as guys you would bring in to try and build your bullpen? I, to me, looking at relievers, relievers are, to me, like NFL kickers because they're so inconsistent. A value, it goes year to year. You can't really trust them. I would not give a lot of these guys long-term, multi-year deals unless it is a guaranteed fact, and there are not many of those guys out there. There's a few relievers that are reliable year in and year out, but there's not many. So if you're going to treat – I would treat them like kickers. I would year by year – don't be afraid to cycle guys in and out throughout the year. And if, you, if someone is not working, cut them, trade them, whatever to do. Because to your point, they are pitching more and more. Bullpens are more important and a bigger role than ever in, in baseball. 
pitchers are starting less, they're pitching less innings, bullpens are more relied upon, they're being used more. That's partly the reason why they're so relieved so up and down because they're being used so often and put in so many high-leverage spots. They're not as consistent because they're getting asked to pitch more than they ever have. So I would go honestly just go case by case, year by year with their levers and just try to patch it together because it's shown and again, some again, more some relievers have been consistent, but more times than not, year by year it all depends. So I would take it and kind of patchwork it as we go, because there's the Yankees have really been the only ones who have had a consistent bullpen year in and year out, and they've made that a strength year in and year out, which is important. But other than that, any guy you look at it's, it's tough to get reliable years, plural, out of them. Mm-hmm. So I would, if you're a contending team, if you're the Yankees, if you're the Dodgers, if you're the Nationals now trying to defend your crown, if you're the Braves, I would pay decent money for a one-year deal over then, rather than spread it out over two or three years. Because we've seen now, mm-hmm. guys can have a great year, and you can get some great value for a pitcher that's had a down year, like Blake Trinan, for example, signing 10 years with the Dodgers. I think that's a good signing. I wish the Mets got him because that's a guy coming now off a down year with the A's, but it was lights out two years ago. Mm-hmm. Can you find it? Maybe, yeah. you know, a new place, new pitching staff, new pitching philosophy. Maybe he could find it again because he was shut down with Oakland two years ago. He was a big reason why they made that big push in the year to get to the playoffs because once they got to the ninth inning, no one was touching him. So you, you know it's there. It's the same with Edwin Diaz. You know the lights out stuff is there. It's just mm-hmm. how can you harness that and make it a consistent thing year in and year out. So that's how I would treat relievers. Yeah, I would not spend a lot of money. I would just go year to year for the most part um, and just go for consistency over maybe hit or miss sort of thing. And again, it's easier said than done. But they're just too fickle. They're, to me, they remind me so much of kickers now where it's just they're too unreliable to ask for multi-year deals for big money. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't think you should be spending more than at least a two-year contract on a reliever. But, but the way I would handle it is I would just bring in numbers. So I would just sign a bunch of guys to either one-year, most of them to one-year contracts, and say, here, battle it out. The best guys are going to pitch. I have no idea what's going to happen this year, but I have 10 guys to choose from. And at least that way, you're giving yourself a chance with a lot of different guys. And I would always go for, if, if I'm looking for middle relievers, I want guys that throw hard. Guys that can get strikeouts, because that's generally what you're going to need at key parts of the game. But, again, how do you, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that I want them in there at the most important type of the game. Like, that, games can be decided in the last three innings differently. And it's kind of assumed now that those guys are going to get the most Game-changing spots, like it doesn't make any sense to me that baseball is uh, is a sport that at at really key points in the game you have guys that aren't the best out there trying to win a game. They did it to themselves, Mark. Mark, the analytics, yeah. themse- the baseball did it to itself because now you, you give all these starting pitchers big contracts, right? Mm-hmm. So what's the thing you want to do? You want to protect your asset, make sure all this a- this this pitcher that you signed to a long-term deal. We saw with Garrett Cole. $324 million. The Yankees have to make sure this guy is available for nine years. You don't want to have him, have him break down, overuse him now, so next you know, three or four years, you're on the hook for the rest of that money going forward. So how do you protect your asset? We saw it Steven Strasburg when he first came with the Nationals. They sat him out of the playoffs in 2012. They will limit your innings, limit down on pitches you throw, and do everything they can to make sure every fifth day you are out there. So part of the analytics say don't pitch him that often. 
overwork is a big reason how injuries start. So if Tommy John is the big fear and having this guy miss a year, year, two years because he's, over, he's pitching too much, that is why bullpens are being relied upon more and more. The analytics also tell you you want you know the third, tenth of the lineup. You don't want the pitcher facing the lineup. Well, you're going to go to the bullpen then. So there's, there's really no other choice you have. Baseball did to themselves. You used to have back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, guys throw complete games all the time. Now it's a rarity. It's a big deal when guy throws a complete game, right? That's a takes over the front page. It's a headline story. X so and so pitches a complete game against whoever in the win. It doesn't happen that often. So that's also part of the reason why you have, to your point, so many unreliable arms in big key spots is because pitchers are pitching less. So now all of a sudden, if you're only getting to the fifth or sixth inning, you need your bullpen for three or four innings yeah. every single night well, to get outs and get important outs. And they're just not – and, again, even the best bullpens can't be relied upon every night no. to get nine or 12 outs. It and just doesn't work like and that. these guys are going to be worn out. Like, like, right. Well, one, one thing I've, I thought that was very interesting is you know, everyone knew how horrible Washington's bullpen was last year. The worst as far as ERA. 5.66 ERA, but they were also, they threw the fewest amount of innings for a bullpen, only 500 innings. All right, then the top four teams as far as fewest innings, you have the Nationals, the Indians, the Mets, and the Dodgers. Three of those teams made the playoffs. Three of those teams won over 93 games, okay? And, but obviously with the Mets, you knew that they had, first of all, they had a horrible bullpen. Second of all, they had good starters. So they had guys like DeCrom and, 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 uh, Syndergaard and Wheeler and Stroman later on in the year. Matt's the guys I could go a little bit. I would not have a problem with my starters going deep into games. I, I think that they baby these guys too much. There's no reason why you need a one a solid, well, if it, it looks at the fourth time through a lineup, I mean, do I want a, my a proven starter out there against the lineup for the fourth time, or do I want an unknown guy who wasn't good enough to be a starter and just because they're only seeing them, it doesn't matter anymore. You have so much video. You have so much things that they can check up on guys. It's not like you're, you're surprising anybody by throwing them into the game and they're seeing them for the first time. I like, do want to push back quickly because yeah, I, I do think now with relievers getting bigger, bigger money and being more important, I think the notion of relievers not being good enough to be starters is different now. Like pitchers in high school and in college now are being trained to be closers. Yeah, I'm not and talking about guys. closers. I'm, so, yeah. But I'm just talking like yeah. relievers in general. Like, to, to me, the notion is outdated that all, every person in the bullpen outside of the closer is not is just a person not going to be a starter. Because now relievers are getting big money. Eighth inning guys are getting big money. Yeah, you're right. Dale despite being hurt most of last year, will get a decent amount of money, maybe in a one-year deal, but he'll get X and X millions of dollars. Yeah, so he'll, right. he will get paid in the millions. So the, because the money is so much greater now for relievers and because there's so much more importance – on the bullpen, those guys, the seventh inning guys, eighth inning guys, even long men are getting decent money because they're being relied upon and asked to do more. So I, I do think relievers are being more talented. It's not just uh, these are like the castaways. They can't be starters. Throw them in the bullpen, get an inning or two. These guys are being trained and bred now to be relievers because their money is there. So I, the bullpens and the arms are getting better. I mean, you see, you, you know, week in and week out, these guys, they bring in all, all throw 100 mile an hour, all have two or three pitches that are, are pretty nasty. It's all about just consistency with them. But the stuff that comes out of the bullpen, usually, and the reason why starters don't go as short now is because guys throw just as hard, if not harder, in the bullpen, and they can you know, really max out for one or two innings, where, again, a starter has to pace themselves. 
Uh, but I do want to get back to Garrett Cole here because, like you said, the Yankees, oh to God. me, this is a move the Yankees absolutely had to make, right? There was like, right. there wasn't an option of not getting Garrett Cole. No. For years now, the last two years, yep. we've seen the Yankees in part not make the World Series and not win it because their starting pitching has been a liability. Two point, they've had a great bullpen and deep bullpen, and it's worked for the most part. But we look at teams like the Astros, you look at teams like the Dodgers, like they've gotten it done on starting pitching, getting to the World Series. The Red Sox the same way, getting to the World Series, having Chris Sale, relying upon their big arms and horses once it gets to October. We saw the Nationals. The Nationals pitched essentially three guys. The Corbin, the Scherzer, Strasburg, starter out of the bullpen. That was it, essentially. Mm-hmm. So the Yankees needed someone like that because they did not have that. Severino has been a nice story. He's been really good. He's been obviously banged up last year. He has been consistent enough to be that number one guy that's just a stopper. We saw with CeCe's Bathory when the Yankees made that big push back in 2009. They signed him to big money, worked out to World Series. So I, I do think nine years, 324, having 36 average annual value, um, $36 million a year, being the largest ever given out for any position, I do think that the Yankees overpaid. Now, with that being said, they absolutely had to do it. And part of the reason why I had to do it is because, like we just said, Brian Cashman did not put the Yankees in positions, whether trade or offseason signings, to get a starter to where the Yankees now were forced to basically – Played their own hand, and basically, I mean, essentially, they just hand, they handed Garrett Cole a blank check. He wanted, you know, whether he wanted to be in Anaheim or not. The Yankees were making it known that no matter what you where you want to be, if the price is right, you will go for the highest bidder. We will be that highest bidder. Apparently, the Dodgers and Angels had over three hundred million dollars on the table, willing to go higher. The Yankees outbid everyone else and made it clear we will not lose out to Garrett Cole. Mm-hmm. So credit to Brian Cashman, the Yankees for opening their wallets and getting it done. Like you said, they had to do it. And now they finally get that front line started, that big-time shutdown ace that you want. And to me, at least, I don't know, let me hear what you think. Because he's 29, because the money's so great, I think the A's have a three- or four-year window where Cole will be in his prime, pitching the best he possibly can. Do they have that window, three or four years, to win at least one World Series, if not multiple? Because then once you start getting age 33, 34, 35, and you're paying Garrett Cole all of this money, eating up a lot of this you know, for lack of a better word, salary cap, although there's, n- there's no real cap in, in MLB, but people do see the luxury tax and do see that, you know, on the payroll as a, they try to curtail that. Cole's going to take up a lot of this payroll going forward, and he will be older. I mean, they're going to pay him until he's 38 years old. Mm-hmm. Nine-year deal is 29 years old. So they have to be at least a three- or four-year window. They have to capitalize before they have to pay Aaron Judge, before they have to pay Gleyber Torres, even Gary Sanchez, where they need to win and win early. Do you agree with that, or do you think the window's longer? No, I, I think you're right. I think that there's a – look, the Yankees have a lot of guys that are still young that they don't have to pip worry about paying now. Okay, they, you know, like you said, Gleiber and, and, and Andahar, okay. And they have a, also a lot of guys that are nearing their end of their career, like Brett Gardner is not going to be around forever. He's a very – Bringing cheap, him back again. He yeah. seems immortal, but he's coming back for another year, it seems like. Key part of the team. Uh, Stanton, you don't know – you know, he hasn't been a big contributor. Okay, but they got him for a reason. Uh, obviously, Judge is a, a, a huge guy. He's got a number of years left, so he's not an issue. Um, some of their other guys that they're relying on in the bullpen, you don't know how long those guys are. You know, but chances there's a shelf life for those types of guys. You know, you know but they're, they come in and out, and they're, they're easily replaced. But even a Chapman. Uh, Chapman is a bit of an unknown as a, as a closer. Most most. Analysts consider him one of the best in baseball, but you've seen him blow up at key times. You saw him in Game 7 of the World Series. You saw him, you know, last year give up the game-winning home run to, uh, to the Astros to lose Game 6. So 
it's not like he's a can't miss. So there, there are maybe one or two things that the Yankees probably would like. Like there, are, there was talk about them still going out and getting like a Bumgarner just to really, you know, solidify things. But I think they've done all they can. They have. They don't have to worry about offense. Their offense is good enough. But as we saw with the Yankees from like 2012 to 2015 or, or 2011 to 2014 when they had guys like Swisher and Granderson and guys that would put up these gaudy regular season numbers, they all could be pitched to in the postseason. Yep. So, Nick Swisher especially. Yeah, Swisher. Is, so yeah, he would just disappear. Uh, he would go on a witness protection. He wish he disappeared. So yeah. That's the worst part. He would um, be right there in the forefront. And even Gran- Granderson. Granderson had 40 home runs, and then you know, he would hit you know, 120 in the division series. So it's nice that these guys put up gaudy offensive numbers, and you saw that a little bit last year too. Some of these guys for the Yankees uh, – didn't come through in the ALCS against the Astros uh, when you would think, okay, these guys are, are kind of done it all year. They've done it in big games. They did it in the division series. There's no reason for them not to. So it's, it matters how – if look, a guy like Stanton is a guy like that is going to put up big numbers in the, in, the, in the regular season, but there's so many weaknesses in his approach that – you're not really – you'd rather face him in a big spot in a postseason, okay? The guy like Swisher, you knew he was – you know, when he's up against four five – you know, number four or five starters, he can maybe, you know, go off on them. But against really elite pitchers, they know how to pitch to him. Same and with Gary Sanchez, too, same thing last year. Like he, he was a non-factor, especially in the ALCS. Yeah. Um, he's a bit of an unknown still because he's still young enough to make the adjustments where you're – You've seen him be able to, you know, come through in big moments during the right. Like, I think Sanchez isn't a hit or miss guy. Like, he's not a strikeout or nothing guy. He's a guy that usually can make contact and usually is going to give you a good at bat. It's not like he's a, he has a hole in his bat like a guy like Stanton. Right. He's um, a gap hitter. Right. With power, but he hits the ball. like contact. But when but the you, playoffs came, he struggled. Absolutely. He did. But, it, but then you, you got to think. Do we want guys that are going to put up gaudy regular season numbers and that have glaring weaknesses that are going to be exposed in a postseason? Or do we want guys that are going to put up solid numbers in the regular season but be hard outs, be tough guys to strike out, put the ball in play? Like, what, what do you want on your team? There's got to be a balance. You know, you saw uh, some of the best offenses I've ever seen during the regular season. I remember the Rangers in the late 90s, Dad. You know, uh, Pudge Rodriguez and, and Juan Gonzalez and, um, you know, some of the, you know, Palmero, some of just guys that would put up, you know, Hall of Fame type numbers in regular season. And then they couldn't beat the Yankees at all. You know, division series, David Wells, Roger Clements, like they, they, would, they would go hitless and they would be out in three games. Um, uh, the Astros, I remember one year they had like Hidalgo, Bagwell, Biggio, guys who put up great offensive numbers. The Braves went right through them. Um, you saw... Great offenses in the last couple of years. You know, the Dodgers last year, a, a incredible offense, put up great numbers during the regular season and couldn't beat the Nationals. Yep. Okay? And, like, do you, are, do you think you're going to see more of starters in their off day coming in and getting big outs? In the regular season or postseason? In, in, in the regular season. No. Oh, no. God, no. You don't think so? Because the regular season and the postseason are two, like, it's almost two different sports almost. 
The regular season is too but, long. Yeah, you can't do that. Pitchers are already pitching enough. Postseason year, you're going to do that. You, you can't. You can't do it. I, I like even like Andrew Miller, right? When Tito Francona with the Indians first started using Andrew Miller, he was really the first one to kind of reinvent and kind of utilize the bullpen as much as possible, right? So he was kind of the first guy that brought in Andrew Miller, who was their closer at any point. Fifth inning, if that's the biggest spot, high leverage situation, he's going to bring him in. And now we start to see that trend start to happen where there's no real roles when it comes to the postseason. They'll bring him in whenever. But in the regular season, you still bring Andrew Miller in the ninth inning. You're not going to bring him in in the fifth inning in a bases loaded two-out jam when you're up 2-1 to one in the fifth inning. You're not going to do it. Because it's just a different game. So there's, to me, especially with the way starters and how much they're getting paid, and even the, the money you're shelling out to relievers, there's no, to me, no scenario or circumstance where you were bring a Garrett Cole, let's say, off three days rest to bring him in in the eighth inning because you're playing the Twins on a Saturday afternoon and it's 5-4, Chapman's struggling, maybe he needs a day off. So to me, it, it, because the games are so different, regular season and postseason, and because the season, more importantly, is so long, 162 games, you want Garrett Cole to make 30 starts. He's pitching enough as it is, and you want him to go deeper in the starts he pitches rather than pitch him five innings and maybe save him uh, three well, days later to bring him in. Well, I'm saying I, both, all these guys throw on, their, on, on like the three, four days. They have their throw day, okay? And that, that's the only day that they would be – if I was doing it, it was the only day they'd be available to pitch. Okay, right, but whose throw is, day it is, is it? Whose throw day is it? You go no more than one inning. If, uh, if you're needed, be, uh, be on call. Like, would, would it be better to do that and know that you're putting the game in the hands of a guy that you're counting on most of the season? Would it be better to do that more, more often than giving the game to I still average no. pitchers in, a, in big spots? I still say no because a throw day and pitching in a game is too – in terms of – Adrenaline in terms of excitement level, it, to me, it's two different things. Well, a throw day, you're not like you're pitching. You're right. You're right. You're pitching 30 pitches. It's supposed to be a simulated start per right, se. Right. But there's also a, an ease to it as well, where you're starting to work your way back. Your arm has been tired. Mm. You're working. You know, you're building out that lactic acid. You're still kind of working your way back to get loose lactic acid. For, I didn't think that would go to make our way into right? the show. But it's it's true. I mean, that's why they run pitchers run so much because all the lactic acid builds because they're using their arm for 100 pitches every five days. So it, to me, it's more of like a, a warm-up walkthrough, per se, than actually you're firing live bullets here. So to go into a game that adrenaline rushing, throwing as hard as you can, rearing back, you can't just ease your way into it, to me. So, so also, I, don't, I don't think it would happen. I, if I was a manager, I absolutely would not use it in the regular season. So say you have a one-run lead going into the eighth inning, and, a, and a, you know, it, who knows what a big game is during the regular season. There's so many well, big games. Well, that's another thing, right. There's to no start an inning. inning. There's to not start many big inning. games. To start an inning. No. A guy goes out for the eighth inning. You've got to protect a one-run lead. Okay, it's your turn to throw this. You know, you're, you're pitching, what, three days from now. This is your throw time. You, you have the start of an inning. You, you're not bringing him into a tense situation. You're not bringing him into bases loaded, no outs, you know, obviously. Uh, would that be the only situation where you would do something like I that? I would never do it. Okay. I would never, ever, ever do it unless it's game 161 and I'm – you know, it's a basically we have to win out where it is a playoff game just to get in. That's the only time I'm doing it. Especially if I'm the Yankees are paying Garrett Cole. Any of these starting pitchers, right. any of these big-time pitchers, no way. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm, you pay your bullpen too much. You pay these starters too much. And well, they I mean, pitch you, enough as it is. I'm you, not. If you didn't have big time, like the, the only big-time guy in a bullpen I would really give mon- that kind of money to would be my closer. I, I get um, it. But, guys, again, even middle leaders now are, are getting a million. That's not big money, a million or two million. But you're still paying these guys – Decent amount of money. So to me, I you would. I no, I, well, I, I would never give reliever. No, no, I'm talking about middle reliever that type a, of money. You'd bring a Garrett Cole, I, let's I, say, I, in August. 
I, I, would, I would be open to the idea. I, I, I would think it would be an interesting way. I, I would want more evidence that something like that could pay off. Like, if I knew it wasn't going to have, like, these guys are throwing anyway, so I, I would want to see, you know, how, how much they get into on their off day, how, how hard they throw, what their level of intensity is, that type of thing. Kind of going into the season knowing, hey, guys, you may be called on to do this. So that way they already know ahead of time. Not that it would be a set thing that would happen in, in every situation, but I think that I would be open to it in specific games that I thought were important for our team to win. Um, just so the guys can get used to it. I think it's, you saw it really work with the Nationals where they were so freaking awful during the regular season. I mean, I couldn't wait to get to the Nationals bullpen when I played against, you know, when the, when the Mets played against. I mean, you know, guys like Fernando Rodney, and he, it was like a, a circus. You didn't know what was going to come out. It was, you know, it was a, like a bag full of, of tricks. Like, what, what are we going to see today? Like, they would invent new ways to lose, but yet, in, you know, against three teams that they really were overmatched against as far as pitching, they were able to do that and hold off teams using their starters, using guys, you know, for one inning here, one inning there, mix and matching. I, I understand it was only for a specific amount of time and it just, you know, works out well in a postseason that you're able to have those types of numbers. But I, I think I would be open to it. I, I wouldn't necessarily employ it as some sort of strategy. I would, I would still probably go with middle relievers in that situation, but I would at least be open to, well, what's the, what's the harm? Is this really going to tax my, my starter's arm? Is this really going to make them you know, be, be the deciding factor in whether or not I get length out of him on his, on his normal start? Like, how does that affect him on his normal start? Because I would let my starters stay in a little bit longer anyway. I would want my starter to go... I would, I would not be afraid to have my starter go 130, 140 pitches, you know, into the seventh inning, into the eighth inning. Um, and maybe that would take, would, would take the burden off of my, off of giving the game to guys that I don't think are my best pitchers at the biggest time. Yeah, I mean, it's, I just don't think, to me, I don't think anything will change in the regular season just because it's, it's too long and there's too much money tied up mm-hmm. into these big-name guys. But we'll see, you know, again, baseball, ebb and flows, things do mm-hmm. change. You know, we used to have starters, like you said, go 150, 60, mm-hmm. 70 pitches every four days. Right. Now it's changed, so we'll see. If why why do you think regresses. that is, though? Like, there was Analytics, always... I just think, and people are getting started sooner. That's another thing, too. Like, you're training all year round, so now your arm gets more tired. Mm-hmm. Surgeries happen more often. Injuries happen more often because it's, it comes out of money. Because you're paying these guys so much money, mm-hmm. you want them on the field. So right. you're going to try to do whatever you can to protect them. Back then, you know, paying Bob Feller pe- <laughs> pennies, right? Yeah, I know. So if he gets hurt, sure, it stinks. But it's not like you're, you know, your whole team is ruined because you have all this money tied up in one guy where now you have Garrett Cole making $36 million a year. If he gets hurt and he misses a whole, you know, even half mm-hmm. the year, three-quarters of the year, well, you have all that money tied up into a guy that's not on the field. But so you want to protect your assets. To me, that's why because the money is different and the money's more, that leads teams to be more cautious and take rather be safe than sorry. But if you're paying a guy that much money, don't you want him more than just five, six innings every five days? But that's what you're paying him for. Like that's I mean you're for Garrett Cole it's six me. or seven. Well I'm paying a guy three hundred and twenty four million. That's not enough for me. It's like, a long game too for these I mean it's nine years, so it's not like you know Yeah, I know, I, I know. But but I I still think I, I don't know. That that to to me what is what is expected out of a starter now is so little. Like a quality start is six innings and three runs or less. Like that different game. It's a different game. 
I, I, you're right. I think analytics have a lot to do with it. I, I think now a lot more pressure is put on these guys to have stats thrown at them as far as, well, you, you know the stats say this, so why did, you know, of being second-guessed, of being all that. So I, I, I think that's a, a very good point you make as far as everything's a statistic now. So there's a lot more to criticize and a lot more of these managers to be second-guessed than there was before. Uh, very few managers, I think, go by instinct, which back then you would have, you know, Earl Weaver, um, you know, Sparky Anderson, guys who really played the game in their mind and didn't really always rely on statistics in order to go with the situation they thought would be the best for them. And sometimes it worked out, sometimes it didn't. But I think now everything is so based on computers and based on, well, does that say this is the right move? And as long as you do that, you're somewhat being safe. So it opened it. You're not as open to criticism. I mean, do you feel like that managers have that much more pressure on them because there are things that, you know, writers and, uh, and, and even guys who will employ them can look at and point to and say, well, you went against the grain. Why did you do that? I think managers have less pressure because I don't think a lot of the shots that are being called are from them. Like, managers are being asked to do less. It's all about the front office, the GM now. The GMs, are a, lot, a lot of them are hard, want to have their hands and fingerprints over the lineup that's constructed every day, want to have their fingerprints over who's coming in the bullpen, who's the first call situation. So, to me, managers are being asked to do even less. Now, sure, they're the ones who face the music every night. Right. And so, the beat writers say, why'd you bring so-and-so in the eighth inning? Mm -hmm. You have to say, oh, yeah, I thought it was a good matchup. I bet you more times than not, it's the front office saying, this is our plan. Right. If we get in this situation, we're going to bring this guy first, then this guy, then this guy. Right. So to me, managers are being asked to do less. That's why they're getting paid less. And that's why, too, yeah. guys with experience Good like point. Joe Girardi, guys like Buck Showalter now, mm -hmm. are not as in demand and yeah, have right. harder times finding jobs because now it's all about getting yes-man. That's why Carlos Belchon, uh, Alex Cora, even mm -hmm. AJ Hinch, they've been successful yep. at where they are, but part of the reason why they're hired is because they don't want it. They don't have experience, which is what man, which is what front offices want, because they don't have experience. They can kind of help direct them what to do and have their vision, have them manage through the GM and the front office's that's vision instead of doing it, you know, themselves and how. You know, I mean, that, that's why. That's look, a great point. Look right, at around yeah. Major League Baseball, how many managers, first-time managers, little experience are being hired. Yep. So that to me, you know, coming yeah, well, right off the playing field, that's why. How would you feel? You're a, you're a manager and you get a job and you know that you aren't allowed to manage how you would want to, that there's an organizational philosophy instead of them hiring you to do what you would be expected to do, which is manage the game. I mean, you're the one taking the job. I think you know straight up what, you know, the right, so as long as they're are. honest with you, you know so, what you're doing. So, I mean, right? I guess. I'm sure it gets frustrating once you're in the game, but also if, you know, if you're a Rocco Bellardelli, let's say, you want to get a managing, well, you're, the Twins are going to say, you want to be a manager, sure. Well, the X, Y, and Z, I think you'll listen and try to, mm -hmm. and I think you, you think going in, oh, they will say this, but I think once I talk to them and give them my vision, they'll see why I'm right. But, again, that's to me at least why so many managers are being basically taken right off the playing field a few years after, you know, they're so young. Gabe Kapler, Carlos Belch, like I can go on and on. The list goes on and on about former players not that separated from their playing days now getting manager jobs, I think in part um, because of, again, because teams want to have, you know, be able to control them and have them do the moves they want rather than have an old-school guy, Clint Hurdle, Joe Girardi, Buck yeah. Showalter, Bruce Bochy, who, Bruce Bochy, right? you know, retired, let's say. But, you know, if he wants to get back, well, I, to me, will have a hard time because his style is, quote-unquote, old-school of doing it your way, which is not really how it is done. I do want to get to one quick thing okay, here with baseball. Because, you know, we just saw the winter meetings. One thing that I, I kind of took out of it and the theme that I want to ask you about. Yeah. 
so many, and we talk about just young, you know, young guys right now, right? Mm-hmm. So many young players are on the trading block that I wonder, should there be concern, right? Carlos Correa with the Astros, two years left to team control. He is being floated out as possibly the Astros would be open to trades. Chris Bryant, now his service time is unknown if he's a free agent after this year or in two years because the Cubs manipulated his service time. He's supposed to be in the block. Francisco Lindor, same thing, two years left. He's in the trade block. We just talked about Josh Hader. The Brewers floated his name out there. That, they're not saying they want to trade him, but they said they're open to trades and sending Mookie Betts to the Red Sox entering his final year under contract with the Red Sox. Are you concerned or should there be concern that so many young superstars, because all of these guys are still young under their first contract, they're about to get paid. And in all different markets, small markets in Cleveland, big markets in Houston, Chicago, and Boston, should we be concerned that so many of these guys, like so many teams are unable to pay their talent, their young talent that is? Like these are all guys drafted, Carlos Gray, Bryant, Lindor, Hader, Betts, all drafted by their teams, all came up through their farm systems, all were superstars in their respective rights. But now it's these teams are being unable to, to pay them. Is that and again, some of it like the Red Sox have the money tied up in JD Martinez, David Price, but even just like with the Indian just being, you know, thinking they won't be able to compete and give Lindor the contract he wants. Is that a legitimate concern for baseball that a lot of these teams can't sign their own homegrown talent once it comes to them hitting the free agent market? I think every year you kind of have guys that look, you know, teams that look to the future and say, okay, we've gotten so many years out of this guy. How many more years can we expect? Look at our farm system. We're going to have to pay these guys more. Who really are the guys we're going to build our team around? And in trading them, you're getting them at top value. So you're able to get – I heard a conversation last night between some of the guys on MLB Network as far as, you know, prospects generally what? – what, what's the rate of success for prospects? Right. Probably like 30%. High. Right. You know, and so one of the GMs, uh, I believe it was John Hart, uh, saying, you know what, if I could have a, a GM job right now, I would be less afraid to pull the trigger on some trades because I think as a GM, you're so afraid of giving up that young talent for a can't-miss guy, a proven guy, and so often those prospects don't work out. So you look at, you know, as long as you have prospects to trade, you know, you, you want to make sure that you're continually building. That's why there's so much... You know, when I asked you uh, a couple weeks ago about, like, what would you invest in if you had a certain amount of money? What would be the first thing that you really paid a lot of attention to? And I think we both can agree, like, scouting and being able to take advantage of, you know, these these places that are now opening in the Dominican Republic and all these baseball schools that are opening all around the world kind of to develop talent is a big way. Not just drafting guys, but being able to recognize guys that – have those five tools that you can mold into a, a baseball, a really good ball player. And these guys are being drafted younger and younger. You see like 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds, get, you know, guys from Cuba, guys from uh, the DR getting these you know, record-breaking contracts uh, at, at, at that age to kind of develop them into the future of the organization. So it's not just drafting and scouting, but it's also player development. A lot of that has to go into that. So you see the game changing right there. But because so much is put on that, I think it makes these younger players a little more uh, susceptible to being traded at, their, at the peak before they really have to give up a lot of money for them. That's why you see a, a team like the Braves going after um, you know, uh, a, a guy like Albies and a guy like uh, Acuna and saying, you know what, we're going to end your rookie contract. We're going to give you big, bigger money now, not necessarily what you would get as a free agent, but... 
we're gonna we're gonna make sure that your 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 minimum is no longer you're gonna get paid five six million a year for the next five six years. We can control you for that long, extend you another three years on your rookie contract, right? And that's gonna be our window with you. And then I, I and and I think when you're you've seen the Rays be successful with hardly any money to spend, so I think a, a lot more is put into this analytics, put into. You know, there, there are windows, there are two, three windows some teams have. There's one-year window some team has. A team like the A's there, they're able to kind of reinvent themselves every couple of years. You know, they'll, they'll have a three years where they'll compete and they'll make the playoffs and lose in the first round and then be bad for two years and then kind of make their way back. So I, I think there's a way to win. There's obviously a way to win and, and not spend that much money. So I think that a lot of teams are trying to figure that out and kind of come to a happy medium. You can just overspend like the Red Sox did a couple of years ago and just go out and get the best players and have that be your philosophy. But then if you don't have the money to sustain it, you have to rebuild anyway. So what the Red Sox are kind of doing now, the Yankees, even for as much as they've been criticized, the Yankees are, when they've been successful, they've done it with homegrown players. So I think this is another example of them doing that they have a lot of these guys that come from their farm system that they developed that now they're you know they can pay but you have teams like the astros you don't really know where they sit on a financial landscape like you know they're good but are, can they really afford like five you look at their lineup last year one through nine were like basically all-stars right. so they, they, they got to cut the cord somewhere I get it, and that's, I guess, like, the debate I'm having with myself of, like, if this should be a long-term concern. Because you're right, like, the Astros with Carlos Correa, maybe it's sitting with the Cubs with Chris Bryant. They had, like, I guess that's the consequence maybe of drafting so well when you have all these young guys now at the same time or nearing the same time where they all deserve extensions. I just, I mean, just looking at it, like, because your point, like I said, because prospects don't work out so often, because it's, like, when you draft homegrown guys, like, all these guys I listed are all drafted homegrown guys that, you like, you want to pay. Because they are known quantities, you know what they can do. You saw with your own eyes, you developed them. Now, like this, shouldn't you be reaping the reward where you did all the development, you drafted well, you scouted well, they played well for you, your fans love them. Shouldn't like you be able to keep these guys now and pay them? Because now, what are you gonna do? You're gonna trade them for more prospects where if they don't work out, we don't now. When someone else, like the Dodgers or the Angels or the Yankees or the Red Sox or any of these teams in big markets that can just basically scoop them up and, and pay them big money. Again, maybe like that's, I'm so maybe I'm just making a bigger deal than it is because like it's maybe it's just the, the consequence of drafting well and you have to pay all these guys. Mm-hmm. Someone has to kind of get the short end of the stick, and you can't pay everyone. And I get it, but in a sport where there's no salary cap, I get there's luxury tax, but there's no salary cap, so there's nothing in like financially that the sport puts in to prevent you from signing every one of your players and giving them whatever they want. I get superstars are getting paid record money now, right? Again, we just. Saw three Scott Boris clients, Steven Strasburg, Anthony Rendon, Garrett Cole, get paid. Absolutely paid two of them with other teams they, did, they weren't drafted with. So, at least to me, I guess that's my, where my concern comes in because it's just like, is this going to be a problem where now fans are going to be conditioned to root for their players young and then watch them and just get ready for heartbreak as they go to two or three teams that could just pay X amount of money, have deep pockets. And listen, this could be the Mets too. Cause I, I'm not trying to just... Because once Steve, Steve Cohen comes in, they'll, they'll be the richest owner. So this could be the Mets' problem. But I don't think it's a good baseball thing when you have three or four franchises that just have bottomless pockets that can pay for this prime talent that other teams can't afford. Like the, the Indians just can't afford Francisco Lindor. Like, should that be – like, should there be a salary cap? Should there – like, what I was thinking is 
Should you put the NBA style of salary cap and max extensions and max contracts you can offer someone, put, should you put that system in? Should we have it the Wild West where basically you can get as much money as you want because there's no cap. Teams can just go crazy like the Yankees. If they can afford the luxury tax, it doesn't matter. They'll pay. They'll basically hand you a blank check, and you can get anyone you want. Should you put in an NBA-style salary cap and max contract where you can offer this amount of money this early, and it's only slotted this amount of money, because then you can keep homegrown guys. You could keep a guy like Giannis in Milwaukee with the Bucks. Wouldn't you want to keep a Francisco Lindor in Cleveland with the Indians instead of basically seeing all this talent stockpile in two or three different markets, and now it's an arms race between the Astros, the, the Angels, the Dodgers, the Yankees, and really it turns into college football where there's only four or five teams that can truly compete for World Series, maybe that team being generous with the amount of money. Don't you want to see some parity in this sport? I guess I'm just speaking out loud, and I guess the frustrating part for me is I don't really have a solution. Like, I'm kind of talking like, – I'm not even sure this is a real issue. Maybe I'm making a bigger thing of it as it is, and it's just a coincidence that all these young guys at the same time are being traded upon. But you got to think, whoever's trading for Carlos Correa, Chris Bryant, Lindor, Hayter, Mookie Betts, they're going to have to get paid and get paid soon because they're outside of Hayter at the most these guys have for two years left. So whoever you're trading them to, you have to think, can sign them to a long-term deal. So because prospects are so fickle, because it's unknown and less than a guarantee more than any other sport that guys will um, come through and succeed – I just feel it's frustrating to, to have these teams draft these young guys, develop them well, hit on a prospect, have them come out to the major leagues, be successful, be superstars. Chris Bryant's an MVP. Carlos Correa is a superstar. Lindor is a superstar. Mookie Betts is an absolute superstar. These guys deserve to get paid, and they deserve to be on the team they are drafted with. I guess I just find it frustrating that now they're going to get to free agency. they get to the point where they will just be handed a blank check by only a few teams that can afford their services, and we'll see sooner or later maybe talent stockpile in just a few markets, and now it's an arms race between three or four teams every year that can afford this talent, right. and now you're alienating 25, 26, 27 teams that just can't afford to play. And like you said, the Rays win and are successful because they, they drive analytics. They don't pay a lot of their talent and money. But is that sustainable long-term, and we, they've yet to win a playoff series with it? Well, I, I think if you look at – a couple years ago, you had guys on the market like Shelby Muller, okay, Marcelo Zuna, um, Danny Salazar. The, these were the guys that were, were kind of the next generation. Salazar's kind of fallen off the table a little bit. Ozuna went from the Marlins to the Cardinals. He's had a nice career. Uh, Yelich, okay, I, got, I loved Yelich with the Marlins. I said, this guy's going to be a superstar. Uh, hoped the Mets would, would go get him. And then you see the type of player he's developed into. So... That's always the fear. People say, oh, well, this is, it's going, they're going to price the low-market teams out of, out of the sport. Well, they've chosen to create that system. Now, if you look at World Series winners, the Giants you know, won three World Series. They never really had that high a payroll. Okay? The Cardinals have a higher payroll than most teams, but they've won a World Series 2006, 2011. You have, you know, in, in, in 2000, you know, the, the Astros aren't, loaded with money, but they drafted well, and they were able to set themselves up for years to come. Um, the Red Sox were really the exception as far as they just outspent everybody and was able to win. Usually the guys that spend the most money, see, the last time the Yankees won a World Series was 2009. So you have a lot of small market teams winning, uh, but not – there's they, they're good enough to get to the postseason, but you don't see a lot of these small markets. Look, the Braves are a great example. Braves know how to run an organization, 
but here, here, here's a great thing to talk about. I, 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 my girlfriend is a Braves fan, so I told her years ago, about two years ago, I said that the Braves have no interest in, in re-signing Nick Marcakis. He's, you know, he's going to want a long-term contract. This was after the 2017 season. And he had a great year in 2017 for them. I said, they're not going to bring him back. They brought him back for a one-year contract 2018. They brought him back 2019. They're going to bring him back again this year. Okay? Um, they don't have a guy that's really ready they, they thought they had some prospects that were ready to step into his role, but nobody really developed himself. Now they have Austin Riley, okay? So they don't need to re-sign Josh Donaldson if they don't want to, okay? But Donaldson was a huge part of their team last year. What do you do if you're the Braves? Do you sign him to it? He, he's, I don't think they're going to go four years to him. And that, that's what he really wants. You know, but he would be a difference maker for them. They already went out and they signed Cole Hamels to $18 million for one year, something the Braves usually don't do. And they're loaded with pitching prospects, you know? So what do you do? You know, in, in that situation, you have, you have choices to make. A lot of times these guys will choose to, definitely guys that are of a certain age, they're not going to overpay big money for. If they want to come in on a one-year deal like Donaldson did last year, fine. But they're not going to sign them to, to mega years for guys that are older than a certain age. Teams like the Braves. Maybe the Yankees would. But there are a lot of teams that find themselves like that, where a bad contract for a guy in his 30s is going to kill them. No, like, I get Mark. I get that. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm trying to talk about young guys that, that are goes in 25, it. 26, 27 years old that you grow. And maybe, maybe the answer is just do what the Braves did. Rip up these, you know, because it's, what, right. six years before they can reach free. Right. See, maybe it is just two or three years, take a risk and pay, you know, Acuna, Albies, and just rip up these young guys' contracts mm-hmm. and say, listen, we'll give you guaranteed money up front. Obviously, it would be a discount for us compared to what we think you can be. Mm-hmm. And you, instead of going through arbitration, getting the, uh, the minimum and basically – slowly working your way up to a, a big payday in, you know, let's say five years from now, you get $100 million now. So I get it. Maybe, that, maybe that's the answer. Maybe, again, I'm well, overblowing this. But to me, I, I guess, like, I just don't want to see small markets now be priced out. But that's not going to happen. It already hasn't. Small market but teams have a chance. This is different, Mark. This is different. The money's getting bigger. But it, it's always like, been like that. baseball, the landscape is changing, though. I, I don't think it is. I, I, I think it, it shows its, itself in different areas, but I, I, I still think that Ever since they introduced the, the penalty of going over the salary cap or, or the, the luxury cap, you've had teams that have done that, but still small market teams find their way into the postseason every year. They're able to you know, put money towards other things and do other things really well and be competitive. So do they have the money to spend in order to stay up there? No. They're going to have to re- keep rebuilding, keep rebuilding, keep rebuilding. That's kind of what you have to do if you're in a small market. Is it fair? Do I like that? Do I think it's the best thing for baseball? No. But that's the players union will never let there be a salary cap. The only way you can get around that is to have a hardcore salary cap. I get it. And maybe that's what I'm suggesting that should happen and model the NBA, do what the NBA does. And when mm-hmm. you have like, you can give a team like the Indians first dibs where, listen, you can give an extra year to Lindor, you can give them an extra 30, 40, $50 million. Yeah. But I get it. You're right. Like, there's no reason for the, when the players are getting this much money, I get it why the Players Association would not want that to happen. You're right. capping what they can earn rather than having a free market, which is what this country is built on. Get as much money, get as much as you're worth. But I just don't want to see the small markets priced out and to yeah. a point where we have Neither do four, I. five, six teams basically stockpiling every I, single young stud because now teams, they'll just wait. If they're drafted early on, they're brought up early on. Like you said, people are getting drafted younger. They're being brought up to the majors younger than ever. So that means they're hitting free agency younger, mm-hmm. which right. 
So now it's you're getting a free agent 25, 26. They'll wait to because they, and they'll get that 300 million dollars because you are still getting a guy younger than ever instead of getting him at 30 years old, which is mm-hmm. what normally with baseball you would see because they wouldn't be brought up to their 23, 24 years old. Mm-hmm. So it, now it, they're it being all, yeah being brought up at a much so, younger age, but also they're being drafted at a much younger age. They're being right. developed no, at a much younger age. So they're making yeah. it to the majors younger, having more success at a younger age, and that's mm-hmm. why you get Bryce Harper, and that's why these these contracts, the record contracts, keep one-upping each other because mm-hmm. you get younger guys more than ever continuing to be at the peak of their performance, heading for agency. But so you also have tough teams that don't want to do like, like it, it's It's tough. Owners find themselves in a tough position because they created this for themselves. And so, like I was talking about, in the 80s, there was a time where they decided we, we don't want to spend any more money on big-time free agents, and then they got brought to court by the Players Association and actually were convicted of collusion, which it's really hard to do, to prove a team, to prove that owners are colluding against the players and not signing them because they want to force uh, contracts that aren't going to be as expensive, that's hard to prove, but they proved it. And I think that's kind of what happened last year, is guys didn't want to give Machado that much money. Teams didn't want to give Bryce. And you saw, how did they do? How did the Phillies do? Yeah, no, I mean, you're you not know, wrong, so but, you know. I, I think if... It's, it, that's not always the answer. To, to go and overspend for big-time guys, that's not always the answer. Does it help? Does it make you better initially? Yeah, but there's, you know, if guys get injured, if it, putting that much on one player I think is always a mistake. So I, I think that the, the smart teams will figure out how to be competitive every year. As, as much as A's fans kind of hate seeing their team lose every year in the first round, like the A's have won a, a, a – large amount of division titles in this, in this era of high salaries and, and of overpriced players, the A's are usually competitive, and they're usually not bad for too long. Same with the Braves. So I think there's a way to do it, and I think teams accept it. A team like the Indians, the Indians are, have been good consistently. You know, they don't have that much money, but I, I think they've, they, baseball themselves have put them, uh, these teams in that position. They kind of Okay, well, what else can we do? Like, there's other ways to build teams. That's why you're going out and they'll get guys who are mathematicians, you know, math majors and really can, you know, figure out uh, how, how to squeeze the most out of a dollar that you can. And that's what's getting, that's what teams are doing now. But it's also saving them money with what they're spending for GMs and, and talent evaluators because they're not really paying these guys big time money like they did back in the, you know, in the 80s and 90s. So, the, the money's being spent on different things now, and it's going into analytics, going to all these different ways to kind of reinvent the wheel for baseball. And that's why you see, okay, where can we trade a guy at top market value? Okay, is it going to be when he's 25 and we have 55 other prospects that are coming up and that we're going to have to eventually figure out whether we want to move them or keep them? You know, okay, we've gotten a, as much as we can get out of this guy. Even though he's young, we can get a, a, a whole lot for him if we trade him now, and we don't have to worry about paying him. You're right, and I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. Maybe I'm making a bigger deal than I'm not. I guess we'll. I think time, it's a good point to make. Time yeah. will tell for sure. But unfortunately, it's all the time we have for today on this Friday morning. Thanks so much for tuning in for the morning, boys. Um, thank you so much for uh, Peter Wiseman for joining us, talking a little NFL, and obviously reconnecting the Marcus former co-host. Enjoy the weekend. A great weekend at NFL Heisman Trophy, uh, college basketball, NBA. We'll talk to you on Tuesday. The Haystack is up next, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Is it? It is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.